What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. In a horrific and unfortunate incident that took place in southeastern Brazil, a shooter, reportedly 16 years of age, opened fire on two schools on Friday. The entire incident left three dead and at least 11 injured, according to the reports. Mayor Luis Carlos Cotinho talked about the entire incident and revealed that the shooter had opened fire on a group of teachers at the first school, a public primary and secondary school in the town of Aracruz in Espirito Santo State early on Friday, killing two women and wounding nine other people. He then went to another school where he killed an adolescent girl and wounded two other people. Governor Renato Casagrande has declared three days of mourning in the state and added that the authorities have arrested the shooter. Talking more about the shooter, he said that as per the information received, he was a student at the first school where he opened fire until June, a 16-year-old minor. His family then transferred him to another school. According to the information, he was undergoing psychiatric treatment. Security camera footage aired on Brazilian media showed the shooter running into the school dressed in military-style camouflage and brandishing a gun. He then sprinted through the hallways, sending staff fleeing in terror as he began firing shots. Initial investigations have revealed that the shooter used two different guns for carrying out the heinous crime, both registered under his father's name, who is a policeman. He even had a swastika on his fatigues. Mayor Casagrande said that the boy appeared to have planned the attack carefully, breaking in through a locked door and skirting the school's security guard. Civil Police Commissioner Joao Francisco Filho told reporters that it appeared that the suspect had been planning the attack for two years and that he did not seem to have a definite target. Some of the survivors' lives remain at risk from their wounds. Brazilian President-elect Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva called the latest shootings an absurd tragedy. I was saddened to learn of the attacks, he wrote on Twitter. All my solidarity to the victim's family and my support to Governor Casagrande for the investigation and assistance to the two school communities. Brazil's deadliest school shooting left 12 children dead in 2011 when a man opened fire at his former elementary school in the Rio de Janeiro suburb of Rialingo, then killing himself. A teen in Nazi gear attacked a school with Molotov cocktails. A teenager was arrested in Brazil after he attacked a school with homemade explosives while wearing a Nazi armband on Monday. The incident took place in Monte Moore, a small city about 75 miles northwest of Sao Paulo. No one was injured during the attack, according to the local authorities. Video footage published by local Brazilian news outlets captured the moment that the 17-year-old boy threw homemade bombs at the school. Surveillance cameras from within the school showed smoke filling the hallways and confused students fleeing. There was some turmoil, the children were scared, a thunderous noise, but everything calmed down with the arrival of the firefighters and more support from the military police, Municipal Civil Guard Inspector Denival Santana told Brazilian news outlet O Globo.
The attack took place on Monday morning when an estimated 300 students between the ages of 12 and 15 were attending classes. The teenager, who was not named by authorities because he is a minor, allegedly threw five Molotov cocktails filled with gasoline and nails at the school. Two additional unexploded homemade bombs found at the scene were also disarmed by the firefighters. Police responded to the attack within minutes and arrested the boy as he escaped with another Molotov cocktail and a hatchet. A photo released of the teenager showed him wearing all black and an armband with a Nazi swastika. After his arrest, police searched his home and discovered Portuguese versions of Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler, an airsoft rifle, and a notebook containing notes about Nazism. Police believe that the teenager acted alone and it was an isolated incident. Local media alleged that the teenager was a former student at the school, but that has not been confirmed by authorities. Monday's attack came less than three months after a school shooting in the Espírito Santo state in southeastern Brazil. A former student killed four people and wounded 12 others, while also wearing a Nazi swastika. Nazi ideology in Brazil has existed since World War II, when many former party members and soldiers absconded to South America and began new lives there, along with nearby nations like Argentina and Paraguay. In recent years, neo-Nazi ideology has grown rapidly in Brazil, according to researchers. Acclaimed Brazilian anthropologist Adriana Dias released a study in January 2022 that alleged that there are at least 530 neo-Nazi content extremist centers in Brazil, with around 10,000 members. Gun ownership in Brazil has ballooned in recent years. Former President Jair Bolsonaro expanded gun access to unprecedented levels. After he took office in 2019, the number of guns in civilian hands nearly tripled to 2 million, while the number of registered gun owners has increased threefold to 1.56 million, according to the So de Paz Institute, which tracks gun violence in Brazil. In one of the most violent countries in Latin America, civilian gun owners now outnumber the police and military combined. In one of his first acts when he took office in January, Brazil's President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva issued changes to tighten the nation's gun laws. Brazil has more than one attack per month in schools since August. According to researcher, the pandemic is among the causes of the explosion of violence. A study has mapped out attacks. March 29, 2023, 12.05 p.m. Sao Paulo. Since August, Brazil has suffered more than one attack in schools every month. In eight months, there were nine attacks of extreme violence, with seven deaths, the most recent being the one that took place this Monday, 27, at the state's school Famasia Montoro, in Vila Sonia, Sao Paulo, in which a 13-year-old student stabbed a teacher to death and injured three other teachers, as well as two students. The survey carried out by a group that brings together researchers from Unicamp and UNISP, accounts for 22 attacks in Brazilian schools since 2002, with a total of 36 deaths. This means that, in 20 years, from 2002 to July 2022, there were 13 attacks, an average, therefore, just over one attack every two years. The average that was biennial became monthly from August 2022, 
an explosion of violence. The aggravation is, in part, related to the pandemic and the prolonged closure of schools, which reached two years in some regions of the country. In the evaluation of Telma Vinha, a doctor in education from UNICAP and professor at the university, who coordinates the research, in partnership with researcher and lawyer Cleo Garcia. The pandemic has increased psychic illness, emphasizes Vinha, who coordinates two groups that study school conflicts, the group of studies, ethics, diversity and democracy in public schools, from the Institute of Advanced Studies at UNICAP, and JEPAM, group of studies and research in moral education, from UNICAP and UNISP. Financial insecurity impacted this illness, as well as family conflicts and the teenager's lack of perspective on life, she says. It is also necessary to consider the relationship difficulties caused by isolation, the increase in online time, and, consequently, the greater interaction with extremist groups. The survey considers only attacks of extreme violence, that is, in which there were attempts to commit crimes against life, and which were planned. Therefore, fights that arise in the school environment, even the most violent ones, are excluded. Translated by Cassie Dias. Read the article in the original language. Transnational white supremacy overlap. That is my, I will say, $15 phrase for this week's Catherine Massey Book Club at the Context of White Supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, March 30, 2023. So I have been told this is our 11th study session on Mario Filos, the black man in Brazilian soccer. Now we are <clears throat> headed towards the home stretch. Uh, we are picking up at the very beginning of chapter 5 the trial of the black man. I thought all of this was about, you know, progress and squashing out racism in Brazil and all that. Why do we have the black man on trial? At the end of the book, no less. Things should be getting better, not... <laughs> anyway. Uh, man, oh man. Our to the metronome, man, if it was not going to be the Catherine Massey Book Club, it should be the metronome. That has been the cows in general, but the book club Wow, we chose this moment to read about Brazil for many reasons. They had the violent hooliganism after the presidential election. Uh, soccer great Pele died. He's at the end of this book. That's what we are trying to get to, Pele. Um, all of that at the beginning of this. And then on this week, we had very beginning of the week, Monday, the Nashville, Tennessee shooting here in North America, six people killed, Mike Hill, black male, 61-year-old custodian in that number, and then the white transgender shooter killed on the scene, seven fatalities in total. On that same day, south of the equator in Brazil, that was the last report that you heard school attack teacher is stabbed to death person had a manifesto other targets as well looking to do damage at school that happened the same day 
And that was the last of three separate audio reports that we heard. I know it's not the typical English accent that we are accustomed to, right? So there's lots of things that would make this book challenging, but oh my gosh, I have learned so much. Uh, the three reports that we heard, that's none of this is ancient history in Brazil, even though, wow, it is lockstep with what we are talking about today, paragraph for paragraph. Those three reports are from November of 2023, excuse me, November 2022 and forward. So everything that we just heard is at most about four months old. The first attack, Nazi armed man, twin schools attack. Who goes to shoot up not one but two schools? Nazi armed man, you heard that right? The second report, Nazi armband, that was not an audio glitch. No, you were not hearing things. And in fact, they called attention to it in the report. Yes, in February 2023. And I probably would have noted that because that attack happened on February 14. That is one day before Peyton Gendron's court trial in Buffalo. And that is the day that I flew from Seattle to Buffalo. Not that that's an excuse, but I suspect if I had just been on my normal grind and not going cross country, I probably would have seen that when it happened. But hey, better late than never. But that happened last month. School attack, Molotov cocktail, Molotov cocktails and a hatchet. Isn't that the hooliganism that we've been listening to in this book at the soccer games for three months now? Who are we going to lynch? Who are we going to beat up after the game? Who are we going to tie to a car and drag like James Byrd Jr.? Isn't that what we've been listening to for three months? I'm going to take Molotov cocktails and a hatchet to the school. Not only with the uh, uh, Nazi armband, swastika, they got the Portuguese copy of Mein Kampf. And they got pictures of that, buddy. Then we got the added jewel. We had a listener who asked, hey, old Gussie, didn't a lot of those Nazis after World War II, which is in the very chapter we're talking about today, didn't a lot of those Nazis abscond to Brazil? And I said, hmm, my understanding is that it was not just Brazil. It was South America in general. And that's exactly what they said in the audio report. Long history of Nazi white supremacist activity in Brazil and South America at large. My, what's my $15 for? It's transnational white supremacy overlap. So we got all that in one report. I have learned so much and once again I feel our timing unbelievable. In fact, with the overlap, I almost included one more report because a big one that they talk about with regards to Brazil school attacks, exact same way that they talk about what's happening here in the States. They talk about one of the attacks that happened in 2019 where the attackers were inspired by the Columbine shooting from here in the States. Transnational. Why is that? that, that, that? Yeah. Uh, it. <laughs> And did you catch? They said that they in Brazil got more civilian white gun owners 
than police and military combined. Wow, that sounds like South Africa. That sounds like areas where there are large numbers of black people. That's one I'm going to remember when I hear any of that nonsense. We don't have a race problem in Brazil. You don't know. Matter of fact, the racists, they wiped out the black population through miscegenation, just having wild sexual intercourse. That is extra super false because they got just tons and tons and tons of Negras in Brazil. And then why do they have so many guns on the name of Dr. Francis Crest Welsing, the greatest equalizer? Why on earth do they have so many guns? The same flipping question we are asking here. Nashville, Sandy Hook, Columbine, blah, 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 blah. Why do we have so, why do white people have so many guns? Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, I think, got a A-plus answer on that one. We will get to the book, Chapter 5, Mario Filo's Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer, Audio Segment 1. Chapter 5, The Trial of the Black Man, Part 1. It was, however, quite significant that Palestra Italia had only put a black man on the team after Pearl Harbor. There could be no doubt that one of these days, Brazil was going to enter the war against the Axis powers, one of whom was Italy, which explained the hurry to sign Og Moreira, a black man with closely cropped hair, already bald. Before now, no one had taken a second glance at the always white teams of Palestra. Maybe that was because they were not that white, or they were white in the Brazilian way. And a little, who knows, in the Italian way, like descendants of Othello and Desdemonas. Anyone with dark hair passed as just dark-haired, that is, white, as long as he had good hair, even wavy or curly. Better at times to be wavy or curly than too straight, or suspiciously straight. That of Ogmarera was straight, like that of Leonidas da Silva, but his color could not be denied. Very dark, a tone identical to that of the Black Diamond. Pearl Harbor thus sped up the Brazilianization of Palestra, still very Italian, even making a point of being Italian, as if this ennobled it. It was this racial vanity that had made fascism possible, the return to Rome, master of the world, and which justified the invasion of Abyssinia based on the superiority of the white race over the black. The Italians of Palestra, almost all ennobled by their work in Brazil, had a weakness very strong in the nouveau riche for titles of nobility. Here, the source of such titles had dried up with the proclamation of the Republic, but there remained commendations. As Italians or children of Italians, the people of Palestra preferred those from Italy given by the Pope or by Il Duque. They could even be counts. Thus, the subservience demonstrated by many of them avid to serve Italy or fascism, which could repay them with honorary titles. 
even when the service expected of them was a disservice to Palestra. If a Brazilian club was interested in a player from Parque Antarctica, all the Italians of Palestra would get offended, all of them Italian and Brazilian. More so, however, the Italians and children of Italians who, through dual nationality, were Italians, or at least felt themselves to be through pride of race and wealth. It was, however, enough for an Italian club to flirt with a Palestra player to make at least the most important Italians of the club of Parque Antarctica, even those with commendations on their chests, feel honored, as if a legitimate count were asking the hand of their daughters in marriage. All of this, after Pearl Harbor, placed Palestra, Italia, in a difficult position. If not corrected in a timely manner, the immigre racism of Parque Antarctica, which had gone unnoticed up till then, would appear as a stain, apt to allow the moral defect of fifth columnism, not of the club, but of its management. Thus, yet another closed door was opened to the black man on the continent of Brazilian soccer. It had been a door so well closed that it blocked the entry of the black Lima into Palestra Italia, whereas the white Lima would become the biggest idol, the golden boy. The curious thing is that America, which had produced O Moreira, received the black Lima, who could not wear Palestra Italia's green jersey. It was not a trade. Before going to America, Lima went by Sao Januariao Stadium, offering himself. Why had he not, why had he come to Rio? Perhaps to whiten his brother, almost blonde, with blue eyes and milky skin. It was an uncomfortable presence, that of the black Lima in Sao Paulo, prowling around Parque Antarctica, especially at a time when the white Lima, bordering on blonde, had not yet become the golden child, made more uncomfortable because the black Lima, like the white one, had Italian blood. In Braz, the love of Desdemona for an Othello had repeated itself, without a Shakespeare to turn it into tragedy. The Calabrian father, like so many others, had uselessly counseled his daughter, do not fall for a mulatto or a black. There was no blood, but the Limas who played soccer separated. The black one always with a chip on his shoulder, so much so that unmasked, he would say right away that he was the brother of the white Lima of Palestra. Not to whiten himself, being very dark, or to blacken the other, who was quite white. Not even to ennoble himself soccer-wise. The black Lima was a great player, so great that he provoked a break between America and Fluminense. Antonio Avalar, patron of America, with a distinction of merit from Fluminense, returned his tricolor meritorious distinction, all because one fine day Lima, the black one, entered Alvaro Chavez Stadium 
as if he lived there, or planned to, with Antonio Avalar after him. There was in all the clubs, especially the big ones, the ones that had more people, an espionage service. Every fan was a disinterested investigator, because they were not paid anything, but also extremely interested because they were defending their own tranquility and that of the club they loved. The players' steps were followed as if they were suspected of betrayal. Deep down, every fan is an Othello, that of Shakespeare, not the one from Braz, father of the Limas, the stonecutter Lima who, since he was the father of blacks and whites, merited the nickname which is a jeweler, painter. Fans love while distrusting, if not the player whom they admire and even venerate, like religious devotees, then the human condition of the idol. The fan knows, as a person, that even he could falter before a stronger temptation. If the player loved the club like he did, then the fan was tranquil. This was a love like an impregnable fortress. If it really was love, how could one believe in a love paid for, if others could pay more? Thus, the implacable vigilance to which the player was submitted, especially the black player. As if the black man would more easily falter than the white. Not that whites were not suspected. It was enough for Tedo, America's keeper, who made it on the Brazilian side to let a ball past him that seemed defendable, a chicken, as it was and is still called, for him to be backed against a wall after the first half ended. The more incensed America people, with Antonio Avalar in front, perhaps to show that the threat had the backing or approval of the boss, who was a kind of Sister Paula of America, a good man with a soft heart, easily brought to tears, raised their clenched fist and yelling, warned him that another chicken would be the end of the cornered and terrified keeper. Really the end, because they would break his hands so that he would never again stand beneath the three bars of the goal. This always yielded results. Tadeo returned to the field and did not let another ball pass. Threatened, he became invulnerable. Others could not bear it. At the simple possibility that they might fall under suspicion, they would fall to pieces, as in the case of Santo Cristo, a mulatto on Sao Cristoval. He went to shoot a penalty against Botafogo, arranging the ball in its little circle in the box. The game was in a Figuera de Melo, and when he stood up, Zarsi of Botafogo was there at his side, whispering to him, A canto of race to miss. Santo Cristo felt the blood rising to his face. Quickly he raised his voice, I'm not for sale. Zarsi asked between his teeth for Santo Cristo not to yell, Shut up! Don't be a fool! A canto of race to miss! Santo Cristo still tried to shout out an I, but Zarsi walked away, silently mouthing the words, a canto of race if you miss the shot. 
Santo Cristo understood that there was no point in losing his cool. What mattered was to bash the ball full on into the corner of Botafogo's goal. Zarsi was going to see that he could not be bought, that there was no amount of money in the world enough to buy him. The referee cleared the area, blew the whistle, and Santo Cristo shot so far into the corner of Botafogo's goal so there would be no way he would miss that the ball sailed wide. Then those present in Figuera de Melo watched an entirely unexpected scene. Santo Cristo throwing a fit like a Sicilian widow. He threw himself on the ground, tore at his hair, loudly sobbing and wailing eyes that could be heard from afar. It was as if he had lost his mother, a beloved wife, an only child. He had to be taken to the infirmary, contorting himself in a hysteria without remedy. The Sao Cristoval fans forgot the loss, only thinking about the pain of Santo Cristo. The only way that was found to console him was with a collection, like in church. All the Sao Cristoval people put their hands into their pockets to reward Santo Cristo. It was the way of proving to him that they did not suspect him, quite the contrary, so much so that Sao Cristoval had lost and still received a beast bigger than the one for a win. This was how Santo Cristo finally managed to dry his tears. He was still racked by sobs, but now of gratitude, less for the money than for the proof of trust. A greater thing there could not be. Precisely because soccer was developing, in some players, acting skills rarely seen on stage or screen, more than athletes they were actors, and actors who played a role without a scene director or script, in accordance with the circumstances. A typical example of the genius of the stage transferred to the soccer field, also a stage, sometimes of a Greek tragedy, with the crowd serving as choir, which it always was, was that same Zarsi, who, with a Mephistophelian whisper, had driven Santo Crispo to despair. In a Fluminense versus Botafogo matchup in Alvaro Chavez, Zarsi kicked Russo with such violence that Geraldo Drolla da Costa, the referee, who by rights was an incorrigible tricolor fan, did not hesitate a second. The tip of Zarsi's cleat had not yet reached its destination, and it never did, because Russo leaned backwards, and already Geraldo Drolhe da Costa was extending his arm to point off the field. But before Haroldo Drolhe da Costa could complete the gesture, that is, finish extending his arm, the finger pointing, Zarsi fell down as if struck by a bolt of lightning. Everyone had seen Zarsi's kick. Russo, however, was alive. The one who was laid out flat, as if he were dead, was Zarsi. Just as he had fallen down, stiff, he remained without the tiniest quiver. It was a sham. This was what Geraldo Drolhe da Costa concluded, getting even angrier, as both a referee and a tricolor fan. Geraldo Drole da Costa was so indignant that he went for Zarsi, raging in order to drag him off the field. 
he did not reach Darcy, the players of Botafogo placed themselves between the two, some to add believability to the theatrical scene, others even wondering, what if Darcy really had been hit? Nobody had seen Darcy get touched in any way, but his immobility was frightening. A black and white curtain was made around Darcy, even as Geraldo Drolhe da Costa demanded, yelling that the faker be removed from the field because he was irreversibly expelled. Then came the doctor and a masseuse of Botafogo to carry out the removal of Zarsi, with the care demanded for a gravely ill person, a pedestrian run over by a car, someone near death. Zarsi was carried to the running track of Fluminense, made of cinder, located just beyond the chalk border off the field. Seven minutes remained before the end of the game. Laid out on the cinder track, Zarsi remained unwakened. To the greater revulsion of the Fluminense fans, thus the half-eaten oranges they threw at him, half-eaten oranges and balls of paper. Zarsi, nothing. Even the flies gave proof. The flies landed, first timidly, then more daring, at home on Zarsi's face some on his eyes, some along the line of his lips, some in the openings of his nostrils, tickling, and Zarsi did not move a bit. They stopped throwing half-eaten oranges and balls of paper at him. The proof of flies was definitive. When the game ended, Zarsi was carried out on a stretcher in an almost mortuary procession. There were people crossing themselves in Alvaro Chavez. Even the heart of Geraldo Drolhe da Costa had softened. Zarsi's name did not appear on the score sheet. Zarsi was free of any punishment. Someone less informed might see in the contrast between the despair of the mulatto Santo Cristo and the presence of spirit of the white Zarsi one more proof of the superiority of the white man. But there was a mulatto who, compared with Zarsi, would justify the opposite conclusion, also false. He was Carrero, who came to be known as the Rui Barboso of soccer. Carrero had a large head, which seemed all the larger due to the fragility of the body, almost of one piece on which it rested. Physically, Carrero was taken for someone incapable of playing soccer. Whoever looked at him might even bet that he was in the final stages of a debilitating disease. He withstood the 80 or 90 minutes of a game through his management, which one could call genius of the time. Unlike everyone else, he moved, ran, and jumped with his head. At least that was the impression he gave demanding the minimum from his legs, arms, lungs, and heart. The head practically did everything. This was why no one argued against the honorific title that had been conferred upon him, the Roy Barboso of soccer. The admiration for the Bahanian man, which still lived on in the hearts of the people, above all among the less educated and therefore more apt to be impressed by a demonstration of intelligence or culture and transferred itself 
in the grandstands to the mulatto with the thin neck, narrow shoulders, and arms and legs of skin and bones full of tricks who, nothing being able to use his body, had invented things never before seen on a soccer field. One of them was the whistle, just like that of the referee, to indicate an offside on himself. During a Fluminense versus Sao Cristobal game, when they passed him the ball and an enormous back, Hernandez appeared in front of him, a man who, if he were to touch him, would shatter him into a thousand pieces. Carrero whistled between his teeth the referee's whistle. Hernandez, hearing the whistle, stopped. Carrero passed by him, the ball under control, hearing him crying, Foul! Offside, you clown! Offside! Calmly, Carrero pushed the ball into the back of the net of Sao Cristobal. Hernandez only stopped calling him a clown when he saw the referee pointing to the middle of the field. Then he went after Fioro Venta D'Angelo, the referee. Mr. Referee, you whistled offside. I stopped because you whistled offside. Fioravante D'Angelo almost sent Hernandez off early to the showers. He would not allow anyone to try to make a fool of him. Chapter 5, Part 2 Nobody could imagine that Carrero, or anyone else, was capable of whistling with his mouth closed between his teeth, just like the referee whistle. Above all, those who let themselves be fooled by him. Blowing a whistle that even seemed to come from afar, exactly where the referee was, with the whistle in his mouth. Carrero would keep his face frozen, inscrutable, as if he weren't doing anything or was just playing at being blind and deaf. Deaf in not hearing the whistle of the referee, strident, indicating that he stop, and blind in not seeing Hernandez, an enormous human mass, capable of knocking him down with a simple touch, of transforming himself into a stone statue to let him pass by. However, as Carrero continued to advance, Hernandez lost his immobility, shook his arms, and cried out heartily, It's offside, clown! You can shoot, but it won't count! One of the weaknesses of Carrero was the vanity of a Rue Barbosa of soccer, so that no one would think that the one who whistled was a jokester from the grandstands, because what one always heard with no rhyme or reason were whistles from the fans, spread out beyond the four lines of the field. Carrero told the story of his trick, seriously, gravely, in the changing room after the game. Not like an anecdote, a joke to be retold from person to person, but like a state secret or club secret, a scientific discovery whose secrecy for the security of the team needed to be preserved in the most absolute confidence and indiscretion could ruin everything. How many players, after hearing the whistle of the referee, continued on to shake the net of the other team? They called this class, especially because sometimes with the ball in there 
and the crowd jumping up and down, losing itself in the delirium of the goal, the referee did not have the courage to shake his arms in the negative. For this reason, even on hearing the whistle of the referee, the duty of the player guarding an area was to stick out his foot to stop the adversary in whatever way possible. If Carrero got by, sometimes by whistling a referee whistle, it was because he used, like nobody, his body, that of someone recently escaped from a concentration camp, camouflaged as a soccer player. However strong the opponent was, Carrero would exploit his own weakness transformed into an almost irresistible weapon of intimidation. Ayustrich, who was a kind of low-rent Hercules and who played in goal for Flamengo, suffered real tortures of Tantalus in front of Carrero. More than once, he was taken to the point of despair. Carrero would arrive in front of him and try uselessly to stick out his chest in a challenge for their ball. At a flaflu, there in Gavea, Ayustrich lost his head and lifted his foot, pulled it back, and kicked it toward the chest that Carrero had tried to stick out at him. The cleats on Ayustrich's shoes did not reach Carrero, first because Ayustrich repented in time, pulling his foot back, as if he were slamming on the brakes. Second, because Carrero fell down first, as if dead. The fans of Fluminense stood up, clamoring for the penalty, which Mario Viana had not given. Ayustrich still had his leg, pulled back at Carrero, although stiff, glaringly in full cadaverous rigidity, had not broken into a thousand pieces. Despite this, the fans of Fluminense broke into a de deafening chorus of Thief! Thief! directed at Mario Viana. It was to make the play of Carrero, who refused as the Rui Barbosa of soccer to revive himself before a penalty was granted. There was no great fissure of penalties no greater fisher of penalties than Carrero. When he entered the box, the terror would spread because he could die at any moment. If someone touched him, he'd fall like a tree chopped by an axe. In the celebrated flaflu of the ball in Lagoa, he suddenly became nude from the waist up. A pull on his jersey gave him the opportunity to instantly rip it from top to bottom to show his ribs clearly outlined or sculpted in bas relief, his concave stomach, his high suspended clavicles transparent through a mist of skin, his shoulder blades open like wings for flight. The referee was Jose Ferreira Gomez, the Juca of the beach who oversaw a game without running, with the pace of a malandro, which he delighted in being. Malandro meaning, for him, wiser, smarter, livelier. During a corner kick in a Rio versus Fluminense game in 
Kyle Martin Stadium, Duca refused to call a penalty committed by Alcibiades, a black man who had transferred from America. Alcibiades touched the ball with his hand in the box, and Duca, who was nearby, said loudly, You are bought, boy, but you won't get the money because I am not awarding a penalty. He had to give it soon afterward, however, because Alcibiades repeated the move, even deeper into the box, grabbing the ball with both hands and holding it tight like a keeper who was afraid to let it go while an opponent was near. It was a penalty, and Juka had already refused to give one. If he refused again, he would end up on Fluminense's blacklist, and rightly so. But it was Carrero who ended up having to remove his jersey. Let him try the Rui Barbosa of soccer routine with somebody else, not with Juca of the beach. The proof is that in that game, he ended up being ejected from the field in a free kick in the midfield for a foul committed by Carrero himself. He demanded that Juca of the beach count 10 paces. He placed himself in front of the ball, determined to stay with it, to guard it, as long as Juca of the beach did not count the ten paces for the formation of the wall, which would consist of him alone, a wall of one, that one being Carrero, so thin, so delicate, that one could almost see through him. They were in the final minutes of the Fla Flu of the ball in Lagoa. Flamengo had tied it up, and Fluminense was trying to keep all the balls, to kick all the balls into the lagoon. It did no good, because there was a timekeeper in that era. The ball would go out, and the timer would stop. This is why the final minutes had lasted more than half an hour, like in a game of basketball. The solution was to waste time, and if Juca of the Beach, with his ambling gait of a malandro were to count ten paces, then time would ooze out like sand from an hourglass. They saw then Juca of the beach, for whom it was a point of honor not to raise his voice, not to rush his gestures the whole day at his disposition, letting himself be overcome by the fury of an Ayustrich. It was a while being yelled at and pushed that Carrero was put out of the field. And in leaps and bounds, Carrero did not lose the air of Carrero, the face without expression, a little stung, of one who in his innocence was more a defenseless victim of incomprehension, injustice, and arrogance. In truth, it was a meeting of two malandros, the Rui, Barbosa of soccer, mulatto, and the Juca of the beach, white from a good family. Juca of the beach, with the whistle in his mouth, held the reins of power, sovereign of the game. Those who were not for Fluminense celebrated. Well done. Fluminense had been more than warned. When Carrero had gone to Alvaro Chavez, many people were scandalized. How could a Fluminense allow a Carrero, 
a street urchin to wear its jersey. Fluminense responded to all the reservations about Carrero with one phrase, in Alvaro Chavez, there are not any, nor will there be any, undisciplined men. Whoever joined Fluminense, if he was not already, had to very soon become a good sportsman. Carrero, despite the fame that preceded him, even had the pretensions of an Englishman. He went around with a clipping from an English newspaper in his wallet to show to whoever wanted to see it. It is not known how the clipping ended up in his possession. Translated, it said that it was the ball that should run. For Carrero, it was the cornerstone of his soccer philosophy. Through that clipping, which was a Bible for him, he arrived at the most surprising conclusions, precisely because, not knowing a word of English and not trusting a rush translation by someone who just scratched at the surface of the language of Shakespeare, like a melandro at the docks, in contact with sailors, he took liberties, lengthening the mysteries, the mysterious clipping, completing it in his own manner, the untranslatable and unwritten. What English mind could, for even an instance, conceive the idea of catching the hem of the other team's keeper's shirt at the time of a corner, on the hook of one of the goal posts? This was what Carrero did to Ayustrich. When Ayustrich tried to move forward and grab the ball up high, it was like he was tied to the post. What might occur to an Englishman, more to an Englishman than to a Brazilian, would be what Carrero in a flaflu perpetrated calmly, Britishly, against Durandir, who was almost as strong as Ayustrich. The difference was in height. Ayustrich was tall, Durandir of medium stature. He seemed shorter by the width of his shoulders, by the thickness of his arms and legs, those of a weightlifter. Like Ayustrich, Durandir believed in force. When he grabbed a ball, it was as if he were smothering it, in an iron grip like pincers. Well, Carrero threw him with the ball and everything, into the goal, with just a light touch on the shoulder. Durandir had gone up to hug the ball. Below, Carrero waited for the exact instant in which the feet of Durandir made contact with the ground. Before the weight of his body gave him stability, planting him in his clogs, sunken like roots. In that fraction of a second, Carrero touched his shoulder to the shoulder of Jurandir. The stunned crowd saw Jurandir, still hugging the ball, tip over and fall heavily, legs in the air, into the goal. It was one of those things that you had to see to believe. Jurandir stood up like a boxer who has been knocked out and after 10 seconds recovers his consciousness and wants to continue the fight, which he can't believe ended. As usual, Carrero did not even look like he had done anything extraordinary. He was Rui Barosa after a speech. 
Everyone was standing, applauding, in the ecstasy of admiration, and the Bahian like a statue, which he already was. Carrero displayed his expressionless, pallid face, that of an anemic mulatto with dull, deep-set eyes, a thin, weak mustache, and a closed mouth on which not even the ghost of a smile was playing. Despite this, the admiration for the mulatto or black man did not grow. On the contrary, many saw the genius of Carrero as simply the pranks of a street urchin. The ones who exalted or sought to exalt it were those who depended on his genius to win a game. The jersey of Ayustrich caught on the post hook, the collapse of Durandir with ball and everything into the goal, were pointed at as incontestable proofs of the lack of human respect that characterizes the street urchin or the boar. Thus, only a Carrero was capable of doing something like that, not because he was the Rui Barbosa of soccer, but simply because he was more of a street urchin than other mulattoes and blacks. An exception would only be made for the mulattoes and blacks of one's own club, whom one was obliged to defend, and even then with caution. Even a Carlito Rocha, who, when he took control of a team, was a father to the players, serving them eggnog and raw sugar treats, opening to them his full wallet, did not neglect, when dealing with mulattoes and blacks, to put himself on sure footing. The proof is that when he was directing the side of Rio State in the period when mad at Botafogo, he was in Niteroi, taking command of Canto do Rio in order to sleep soundly. He had to invent the story that Mango with Kachaka kills. The Rio State side was almost all mulattoes and blacks. Osvaldo, who was later called Baliza, Paderia, Anduato, Cinco, Ivan, who was actually named Joao, Cordero Lopez, but they had to deceive the naval ministry, which did not want sailors to play soccer, at least on a club. Negrin Howe, who went with Osvaldo, Belisa to Botafogo, Ramos, a bow-legged mulatto, and others less dark and more light in color. The excess of mulattoes and blacks alarmed Carlita Rocha, what good were the eggnogs, raw sugar treats, hard training sessions if afterward, at the first pub, everybody was going to get loaded? That was when Carlita Rocha, each day of practice, started showing up at Cow Martins with a bag of mangoes. All the players, when the kick-around was over, were required to suck up two or three mangoes. The more mangoes, the better. It must be, thought the players, another one of Carlito's ideas. Mr. Carlito must have read somewhere that mangoes had more vitamins than cashew fruits. For his entire life, Carlita Rocha had had a challenge, a calling to medicine, 
nutrition, and dietetics, among other things. He trusted more, it is true, in Saint Teresinha, in Our Lady of the Victories, in the whole legion of saints, so much so that he had made a shirt pin of gold, enormous, almost palm-sized, on which he strung the images of the saints to which he clung in bitter times. It was enough for the other team to attack Botafogo for Calito Rocho, to grab hold of the shirt pin with the fingertips of his two hands and begin to kiss the images one by one, back and forth, as if he were playing a harmonica. The mulattoes and blacks of the real stateside greedily sucked up the mangoes, distributed abundantly by Carlito Rocha, washed their mouths and hands, and prepared to depart. Carlito Rocha then, in the reedy yet vibrant voice that he had, bid the players farewell one by one, warning them, mangoes with cachaca kills, and he repeated it often. Approaching the nearest pub, the mulattoes and blacks of the real stateside would immediately cross to the other side of the street. Chapter 5, Part 3 There were players who could not even come onto the field without a swallow of cachaca, who, if they were to suck up the mangoes of Carlita Rocha, would, at game time, end up without legs or hands to play. It was liquid courage. This was not just a mulatto or a black thing, however. Many whites did not go onto the field without a bit of sugarcane rum. In some, the necessity went so far as to be physical. When the moment of the game was approaching, they would begin to tremble. They would get up in the changing room and start walking from one side to the other, rubbing their hands together. It was to warm them up. Once in a while, they had to stop. Their legs would be trembling. A feeling of faintness would come on. Then it was necessary to give them the heroic remedy, a nice swallow of cachaca. Vitor a.k.a. Kitty, one of the best goalies Brazil had ever had, white and, from a good family, the pride of Botafogo, of which he had been, during the breakup of the league, a kind of chastity belt, everyone in general, Severiano, being able to go professional except Vitor, would not leave the changing room for the field without a half glass of cachaca, drunk all at once. He was a shy man, very quiet, almost frightened, with a frowning face, but his inhibitions were removed by a good slug of cane sugar rum. Speaking was not possible. What was possible was getting the ball, agile, feline, his body as if it had springs, in his dives from side to side, in his jumps, his cat paws ready for the rapid 
instantaneous gesture of defense. While Vitor played, no one from Botafogo opened their mouths to tell the story of the swallow before the game. It was necessary for Kitty to put on the America jersey, though only temporarily, for the secret to escape, like the air out of an inflated balloon. Every club felt duty-bound to hide the weaknesses of the players who defended it. It was a gesture of self-defense. The fans knew that they depended inevitably on their team, on their players. Thus, certain fans showed themselves to be more royalist than the king, disagreeing with the doctor and the coach to satisfy the weakness of the player, as if, instead of feeding the weakness, they were strengthening the player. Such was the case of Jurandir Matos with Veve. Flamingo was doing something to keep Veve from drinking. So, on the eve of a game, no question of it, Veve had to concentrate on Flavio, Costa, ordered that his mattress and pillow be overturned, that they look under his bed, in and on top of his closet, reaching the height of looking in his tube of toothpaste, perhaps recalling the squirt tubes of bygone carnivals. Everything to keep Veve from laying his hands on alcohol. If one let Veve loose a little, he would go to a bar. Then he would drink methodically because he was a glutton for drink until he was glassy-eyed. He never fell down. He did not even drag his legs to improve his balance, as the more experienced drunks did. He was a small mulatto with a flat head, a V-shaped face, and the close-set eyes of a mongol. More like a mongol was his mustache, with the tips falling down at the corners of his mouth. If it had been longer, it would have been a mandarin mustache. During Carnival, Veve needed little for a costume. All he had to do was slip on a Chinese tunic. On the field, however, he was transformed. No other winger knew how to match his cuts like a knife. He would make two cuts and end up in the same place. The opponent was the one who would go to one side, then the other, swaying like a shrub blown about in a gale. Generally, after the cuts, one after the other, Veve would take a shot, and it would be a goal or almost a goal. A player like that, so precious, needed to last, and Flavio Costa knew that if he was drinking, Veve would not last long. Alrighty, context of white supremacy audio segment number one. We are in session or section five. Uh, we just got through five. Through, we just started a very little bit of five three. Uh, so we'll be back. I think for me we're on two twenty five. Got it. What is it? Sobriety would be best. Anywho, 
Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Nazi edition of uh, the Catherine Massey Book Club. Incidentally, I saw it just literally today. We've been talking about the elections and what have you. Jair Bolsonaro apparently returned to South America just today. Literally, they had him uh, given a big grin uh, on the front page of many of the newspaper reports and showing him uh, support or waving to his supporters. They had some of the newspaper reports that said his followers were out with the Brazilian national soccer team jerseys on. They had talked before about how he uh, had, <clears throat> how shall I say, hijacked uh, the paraphernalia for the national soccer team as kind of his colors and they are our supporters. They talked about that quite a bit since they just had the World Cup uh, last year. Anywho, so timely with this book and those school shoes. Uh, so timely. Right and exact. Uh, first up, one of the folks who wrote in will get in some of their commentary. And again, this is the Nazi portion of the book. They already mentioned World War II, so we'll have more on that as we proceed. I even think some mention of the fact that we had one of our listeners who talked or asked, didn't some of the Nazis from World War II, didn't they escape to Brazil? Asked about that before. I think that is going to come up in the book. Alright, so one of the folks who wrote in, one of our investors, this portion of the book. Alrighty. Greetings, Gus. Chapter 5 page 213 okay 5213 Palestra Italia Pearl Harbor Brazil against the Axis powers uh, Og Morera black man closely cropped hair they were not that white white in the Brazilian way, whatever that means, descendants of the Othellos and Desmononas, uh, dark hair, pass as just dark hair, that is white, good hair, wavy, curly, too straight, Italians of Palestra preferred those from Italy given by the Pope or by Il Duce. Did these white people have more allegiance in this Italian enclave to fascist Italy than to Brazil. Maybe. In essence, allegiance to a more overt form of racism, white supremacy. The affinity for fascist white supremacist dictators continues today among white Brazilians. See, Cal Citation, a teen in Nazi gear attacked a school with Molotov cocktails. Yes, that was just last month. Uh, interesting use of metaphor involving a tragic arrangement. Not sure what is meant by its 
use. Absolutely. And that whole passage, like, that's very early on in the reading. Number one, I think one of our listeners before had said, hey, man, this book should be retitled Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer. If we're going to have this much focus on hair in general and mustaches and then how curly your hair is and you've got to whip it because it's got too many kinks in it and kinky haired Negroes and all the rest of it all throughout. I mean, from the beginning to the end of the book, if we're going to have that much focus, Negroes with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer and they should put somebody with wavy hair on the front or whatever, get a black person or mulatto, put them on the front. Uh, with a straightening comb or whatever it is. Um, but, and good hair, like for real, we got that all over the world. That phrase, Dr. Welsing, Pam, Mr. Fuller, so many generations of people have talked about that. Minister Malcolm and that sort of conditioning and brain trashing that, of course, you got those nigger naps and that kinky, nappy, naughty, no good hair that that's not just here in the States. That is all over the known universe. Got to get some some soccer players with that good hair. Even as it, it continued out, you want it to be straight, but not new, not too straight, where it'd be suspiciously straight, like you've whipped the kink out of your niggerish hair. In Brazil, are you serious? Yes, we are. Number two, he writes, page two fourteen. Emigre racism of Parquet and Tartica appear as a stain, a moral defect of the fifth column block the entry of black Lima, white Lima, biggest idol, golden boy, white and his brother, almost blonde, blue eyes, milky skin, whatever that means. Uh, the black one always with a chip on his shoulder, shoulder. Brazilians seemingly were not supportive of this allegiance to Italy. I guess it's not surprising. Calling them a fifth column is an indication defined as a group of people who undermine a nation from within by performing acts in support of a nation's enemy. The term was often used during World War II and beyond, even referred to the Negroes. That's a term from uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters, fifth column. They would refer to the U.S. Negroes. Malcolm X is actually the fifth column. Got to keep an eye on these boys. Number three, 214 to 215. Love of Desdemona for an Othello. Deep down, every fan is an Othello. Fans love while distrusting. Player loved the club. Love like an impregnable fortress. Really was love. Believe in love. Believe in love paid for. Others could pay more. If a black man would more easily falter than the white. What is Philo's definition of love? If you use Mr. Fuller's definition of love, not not bringing harm, then clearly there's a lack of love for black males in Brazil. And I mean, real talk in a book where there have been no females. Basically, we had that chubby black matress slave, basically, who made porridge for the players a few chapters back. But I mean, really, we've had no females and we're almost done. It's only one more chapter, Pele, and we're done. Um, it's no female. So what are you even talking about? Love. We're not even talking about the male-female tackiness that they were normally talking about. This is the same soccer where we're talking about love, where you all are out lynching people in the stands, ready to fight, dragging people behind the cars, and all the. What do you mean, love? Come on, man. Come on. 
Uh, this is this number, number of, and all these Othello, uh, references, even that is like, mm, mm. that's kind of, because he's comparing the fans to Othello, like, mm. and they're being compared to a nigger because they are irrational, right? You can't function in a logic, you're a fanatic, right? You lynching people, what I just said, dragging people behind the car and lynching folks and all the rest of it that we've been hearing about for three months now. All these hooligan annex in the stands. Uh, he continues, number four, page 216. More than athletes, they were actors, geniuses of the stage, transferred to the soccer field, Greek tragedy. Zarsi, Mephistophelian, everyone had seen Zach, Zach, Zarsi's kick. Russo was alive, laid flat as if dead. Zarsi, it was a sham. The entertainment factor and showmanship of this sport in order to an increase fan excitement and interest. It's not just about athleticism and skill. This is not just about having fun as during amateur phase. Absolutely. And Mephistophelian, that's all in that Greco-Roman uh, tradition, but that basically means like uh, devilish. Even if you look up like synonyms for that term, uh, so it's, uh, again, having some sort of association between non-white people, black people, and Satan, the devil, evil. Uh, that is pretty consistent. That's, let's try to look up as much as you can. This book is obviously challenging because it's a lot of Portuguese. And then that's not even Portuguese. Mephistophelian. I even look up the pronunciation on that. Like, what? What are we talking about? Jesus Christ. I'm so glad I didn't have to narrate this book. Number five, page 217. Nobody had seen Zarsi touched. A uh, spirit of white Zarsi was carried out on a stretcher. Zarsi, one more proof of the superiority of the white man. The mulatto Carrero compared with Zarsi, the Rui Barbosa of soccer. Carrero, large head. Zarsi, the hero who put his life on the line for the game. Admiration for the Bahian man. I think Zarsi was faking for the drama of it all. Philo just can't miss a chance to denigrate a non-white player. Large head. I thought that was a really I don't even know what to do. Racist <laughs> with that uh, degrading uh, de- characterization of uh, Carrero. I think that's how you say it. C-A-R-R-I-E-R-O uh, and saying that he has this large head. He would jump with his head and do everything it seemed like. Come on. Nobody jumps with. Come on. Come on. Uh, let's see. Number six. Oh, he's talking about the same player. 218 to 219. Carrera whistled between his teeth. Uh, the referees whistle. Mr. Referee, you whistled offside. Nobody could imagine Carrera whistling like a referee whistled. There was no greater fissure of penalties than Carrera. If someone touched him, he'd fall like a tree chopped by an axe. All the great athletes engage in this kind of gamesmanship. Pretty, prof- uh, pretty widespread, all sports, I think. Uh, especially as they've gotten more lucrative and such, right? Number seven, page 220, referee Jose Ferreira Gornez, the Juca of the beach, oversaw the game. Malandro, wiser, smarter, livelier, meeting of two Malandros, Rui Barbosa of soccer, Mulatto and Juca of the beach, white from a good family. That phrase is in this book so many times. Good family with a whistle in his mouth, held the reins of power. Who remains ultimately in charge? Of course, the usual suspects. 
Rui Barbosa, born 1849, died in 1923, a Brazilian abolitionist. I guess he would have to be. He lived when they had, like, for real plantation slavery. Politician and defender of civil rights. He appears non-white in pictures to me. I did not get to see pictures, so I have to see what this fellow looks like. Does he have kinky hair? Let's see. Page, or excuse me, number eight. Page 221. Carrero, despite the fame, pretensions of an Englishman went around with clippings from an English newspaper not knowing a word of English. We are programmed to seek white validation in a myriad of ways. That is wild to have. And I think I've heard that uh, from non-white people in other parts of the world where they carry around written text in a white language uh, that they cannot read. They don't even know it's the Bible, other documents like that that they'll carry around. Can't read it, but just, hey, the white word. Number... Nine Carrero, he was Rui Barbosa after a speech. Admiration for the mulatto or black man did not grow. Many saw a genius of Carrero as pranks of a street urchin. There it is. So we got the two polarities. We got the good family. That's basically white people. Good family. White people. Good family. White people. And then we got eh, the Negros and the mulatto. Everybody else. The Negros, the street urchins. Ugh. And that continues all the way up. City of God should maybe figure out how I can say that in Portuguese before we wrap this here uh, book up but you see that all the way 21st century good white family and poorly no count dirty black devilish street urchins uh, uh, let's see number 10 222 Carlito Roca took control of the team father of the players uh, excess of mulattoes and blacks alarmed Carlito Roca. The same feeling that suspected racists get when too many blacks move into the neighborhood. We got too many blacks out here on the golf course. Now, wait a minute, Tiger Woo. Get on out of here, man. We got too... It, 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 it. Serena, get on out of here, man. He said some... Whoa, whoa, whoa. You only have supposed to have one black family on the block. Trying to get Tiger out of here now. I thought white people, I thought, and I thought this was like progress. I feel like we've been lied to like a bunch in this book because like we are almost at the end. I thought this book was about, hey, the black man has done it. He has come up. They're not niggers no more. They're not street urchins. They are doing it in Brazilian soccer. And then Pele just, woo, he kicked the whole door down and they are doing That's not what we got here at all. This chapter is the black man on trial. I told you there's only one more chapter left. So I mean... I haven't seen no progress, nothing. They were street urchins at the beginning, and they're street urchins now. Where's the progress? I must have missed it. Devils, street urchins, they got kinky hair. They're about in the exact same position as we started with this book. Let me see. Oh, yeah, I get this. Number 11, page 223. Players could not come onto the field without a swallow of kachaka liquid courage now they say that in brazil too that's crazy not just a mulatto or a black thing what do you do that idiot says sobriety would be best he didn't write idiot but the rest of it he wrote out heard that before but they say that because i've heard that here gotta get me a old cup of courage before i go out i'm gonna do my mma debut get me a old cup of courage you know we're gonna go jump out of the plane and give me a old cup of courage and then we can do it they say that around the world that's what they say Man, give me a briefcase of logic so I can think this thing through. Like, Incidentally, we got the sugar again because they had lots of uh, sugar cane beverages and all the rest of it. All those concoctions, rum, black people, and sugar. They got lots of ways of getting you. 
pause there, see if folks have uh, commentary. The folks who dialed in, see if they have their commentary uh, to add as well. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Now, it might be on the other which I'll say in the second audio segment uh, because we'll have more from this chapter where they're uh, going through kind of how World War II impacted whether or not they wanted black players that was kind of how the chapter started today Pearl Harbor and all the rest of it how that impacts uh, politics and entertainment everything really all areas of people activity uh, in Brazil which is interesting because we've done a number of different books and programs that have uh, dealt with Brazil. Uh, we've had authors on who talked about uh, their books on how World War II impacted so-called black countries on the continent of Africa. We talked about the impact uh, with regards to racism, white supremacy in Germany. Europe, we even talked about, we had programs, had white uh, filmmaker on, talked about her documentary Black Soldier Blues, uh, black U.S. troops going to Australia and white people had to hash all that out. Like, wait a minute, we don't allow Negroes in Australia. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to keep Sambo and all them folks over there. Wait a minute, raping out white women. Black Soldier Blues, great documentary. You can check that out. Uh, filmmaker was a guest on the cows. Yikes, way back in 2011. Um, great info, but I mean, the racism through and through. But I mean, we've talked about World War II huge Mr. Fuller talks about that all the time in terms of his understanding of racism and, and how much you can learn but Dr. Welsing also right she went to Germany we just talked about that went to Germany as a, a gift uh, for graduating college at least her undergrad portion uh, I do not think I had ever really done any serious study of World War II and what was going on anywhere in South America at that time even though I did know a little bit that some of those Nazis I guess a number of them went to a variety of countries uh, throughout South America and I'd seen material on that I just didn't get an opportunity to dig on it and bang it will pop up here like I said now we might have to kind of pay attention and see what pops up in the second portion of the reading uh, or even uh, chapter 6 but wow there's so much there and then connecting that with what I just said those attacks with those young children going and shooting up the schools and everything in Brazil just like they're doing here in Nashville and they got Mein Kampf in Portuguese like come on uh, learn something about everything if you can. Mr. Fuller says that all the time and hopefully I, I can only say I was there for a brief second like oh man went to Buffalo and all this and this goofy book is so hard and everything else. <laughs> that school attack I think the school attack and it was one other event like current event that kind of put this book back in perspective in terms of just trying to pay attention to Brazil uh, that region with regards to the global system of white supremacy racism and trying to learn a little, little bit more uh, so we can be accurate intelligent we talk about the system and Brazil pops up in the future just the comparison with those children alone is so important that this is happening at the exact same time there in the same manner it's white children there too um, they got like a stick out Mein Kampf in Portuguese got the swastika armband what does it mean to be white and is it the same motivations for the folks south of the equator too why they're behaving like this totally locked in paying attention as we go down the home stretch of this book metaphor so at the beginning of chapter 5 
Uh, let's see. So he says, no one had taken a glance at the always white teams of Palestra. Now, we've already heard a whole book how apparently there were a number of teams. Fluminense and some of the, the bigger teams, they were the whiter teams. We are about being exclusive. We're not going to have black players. Maybe we'll have one mulatto with not too kinky hair. It's kind of pale. We'll do one of those. We're not going to have a whole lot of niggers. And seem like they had kind of a quota system. We're only going to have one, maybe. And he's got to be amazing. Like, we're not taking any negro at work projects. See if you can get your act together. Why would this team stick out? Because they don't have any niggers. Doesn't matter, in my view, whether they're Italians or whatever the excuse is. You already got a lot of them. Why would they stand out now just because it's World War II? He continues, uh, maybe that was because they were not that white. Now, that is what? Or they were white in the Brazilian way. That's another what? And a little who knows in the Italian way. What? Now, that is another one. I remember Mr. Fuller from his experience in the war, Korean, right after World War II, where he said we had a white guy in the service with us he said he was Italian American they used to call him Black Sam that's another one you, the Moors and all that whole another subject whole another book running of the bulls and all that that's Spain sorry but still Italy right there uh, I think those two countries Spain and Italy are both thought of as kind of being kind of lower down on the spectrum when they talk about whiteness hierarchy of whiteness uh, and saying that they're you know mm, kind of kind of swarthy but the running of the bull Spain not Italy strive for accuracy uh, he's right so he comes right with all that white in the Brazilian way in the Italian way like descendants of Othello's and Desdemona's Shakespeare characters right uh, Othello's the black guy who's cowbell running crazy for this white woman and really important they still require lots of folks to read that in school or at least have seen one of the many 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 uh, film adaptations right Shakespeare's great gotta talk about the negro that's gotta crave and rape white women that's why I said that's such an interesting metaphor to compare you to a black male who has gone crazy for a white woman that's what they think of fanatics that you are so unable to control yourself for this ball game I just find that to be a I don't know fascinating metaphor anyway says that um, talking about this Italian team that doesn't have niggers um, Og OG Morera was straight talking about his hair oh wait a minute let me go back anyone with dark hair passed as just dark haired that is white as long as he had good hair even wavy or curly better at times to be wavy or curly than too straight that's what I said or suspiciously straight now that's one where I did, whoa 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 that's when I call it before said this book should be Negroes with kinky hair in Brazilian soccer there you go now is it that's it we got to look at that way okay it's a little bit curly but it's not too kinky okay we'll let this one go whoa 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 straight that's a little too straight what let me see you you got a straight then comb and who who are your parents where you where you born what what like are you serious are you serious I don't want to hear nothing about no brown paper bag test I don't want to hear nothing about no uh white people are not aware of they're not race conscious like all of that is a fantastic lie if it's got to be that serious with you your hair is straight but you don't want to be too straight 
suspiciously straight. Says uh, Pearl Harbor thus sped up the Brazilianization of Palestra. By this, they mean them having non-white players on the team. What does that mean? The Brazil? What? It's not like they let the Negroes take over the team. We don't have any here, and I'm proud of that fact now because of Pearl Harbor. Some non-white people have bombed Hawaii, an island in Hawaii that was stolen from non-white people. Uh, now we got to put a Negro or two on the team. What? I, I don't know. It seems like it's a lot of this all over the world. We have to do things to pretend. Oh, we're not racist. Oh, no, 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 no. We 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 got. Uh, can we get the janitor? Get the janitor. Put him out here in a in a soccer uniform with a quick end. Get in the team photo. We got a Negro on the team. Willie is great. Say my name is Jamal. Shut up, Willie. Willie is great. He's been on the team with us for five years. Put that mop down. Mm-hmm. They say uh, we get all this titles of nobility. This time last year, we were reading uh, the man in the high castle. All of that. We like to be up high looking down on people. We like to have our titles. Kings, queens, dukes, earls. At least that's how we think of ourselves in relation to you niggers worldwide. Says, uh, and I have heard people say that about particularly Italy at this particular time when they had, I believe, uh, Mussolini was the prime minister. He ate off Hitler, that strong white authoritarian figure we're going to go out here and dominate these niggers I think he'd already talked about their invasion of Ethiopia I think that Italy I think they are still kind of uh, or some of the white people in that area of the world are still known for having uh, an affinity for that more direct form of white supremacy racism when you have that dominant white male figure in a uh, powerful position of leadership maybe world domination and leadership type of a thing study a little bit about everything let's see Mm -mm -mm. Pearl all of it and even this again Mr. Fuller right when he talks about World War II he's another one who says hey you should study if you want to know about World War or want to know about the system of white supremacy racism study World War II same thing Dr. Welsing said Mr. Fuller says all the time like World War II changed everything that shook up everything and really weakened the system of white supremacy a little bit I've heard him say that a number of times and then give explanation why this is a little bit of it right here uh, where he says all of this after Pearl Harbor placed Palestra Italia in a difficult position if not corrected in a timely manner the immigre racism of Parquet and Artica which had gone unnoticed up till then would appear as a stain apt to allow the moral defect of fifth columnism not of the club but of its management and he says this opens a door for the black man on the continent of Brazil I disagree, but whatever. But the main point, uh, World War II forcing us to switch things around because of what's happening with Adolf Hitler, him saying that that changed things and even weakened the system of white supremacy because of so much of what happened in that time period. We'll have to see how that continues uh, for the rest of the text here. I do think immigrant racism is... Now, if he's saying that these are Italians who've migrated to South America and they're, you know, bringing their brand of racism, I mean, please, at this time, they had plantation slavery just 50 years ago, right? It's probably lots of people who are still alive at this point who remember all of that, lived through all of that, and are still around. So that is absurd in any era, really, any part of the world to be talking about. We got some old, you know, immigrant 
racism. You know. Let's see. Said before going to America, Lima went by Sao Juan Ario Stadium, offering himself. Why did he come to Rio? Perhaps to whiten his brother, almost blonde with blue eyes and milky skin. I don't know what that means. How do you whiten another person? And that concept has come up in this book before, like where whether it's language, reading, clothes, shaving your head, whipping the kinky hair, kinky kinks out of your hair. Like we've heard that type of thing talked about before. Again, every time I think that should be what do we mean exactly? What are we talking about exactly? Uh, And then having this so-called brother, although he said it's not a blood thing, almost blonde, blue eyes milky skin like we got it all of the phenotypical characteristics that are generally associated with what it means to be white uh and then we get the right beneath this we get the metaphor again going back to shakespeare and othello black male crazy about a white woman he says in bras the love of and this is a different writing of shakespeare or yeah shakespeare's othello the love of desdemona for an othello had repeated itself without a shakespeare to turn it into a tragedy the calabrian father like so many others had usually counseled his daughter do not fall for a mulatto or a black <laughs> like all of that i just it's so st- and because the racism is so clearly there in this play like it's it I know this is an important Shakespeare in general is very important in terms of white culture to individuals classified as white. And then this play specifically, one of his more popular plays, so I'm told. But I mean, wow, that's I got it. Globally important. Got it. Got it. Uh, Let's see. Uh, so they talk about all of this. The lo- I, I have no idea how you can have love for uh, a soccer team or a soccer player or any of this, especially if they lose and you're ready to cut and kill the coach and the players and all of that. And you're wagering on the game and all the rest of the, like, I have no idea what that is called. Fanaticism, craziness. They got to go get drunk. Out. All of this seems like it's just an excuse for violence and uh, alcoholism anyway. So, I mean, you know, uh, he says, If the player loved the club, oh, so we get all this about love, thus the implacable vigilance to which the player was submitted, especially the black players, if the black man would more easily falter than the white. This is another one as though this, these no count Negro players, you know, they're going to be willing, easily bought off. You know, they're not going to do the right thing. They're not going to come in here and, and kill themselves and die for the team that we love whatever that means these these no you got to keep an eye on the nigga like are you serious you got to keep an eye on the nigga you know they're not going to do the right thing i thought we had made so much progress we had opened up so many doors for the black man in brazil i thought that's what this book was about i told you i feel like we've been lied to because i haven't seen that represented at all in this text and we're almost at the end now uh let's see
So we got all the antics where they're pretending to, you know, do all these things to try to manipulate the referee, which I think our caller, or yeah, listener participant wrote in uh, and said that that's very widespread, been going on for a long time as long as they've had uh, sports in any form. People even do that when it's not professional and no money on the line. People do that sort of antics and things, trying to get a call and manipulate people when they're playing out at the church or in the backyard. Um Okay, so he moves on. This is 5.2. He says, uh, if Carrero got by sometimes by whistling the referee whistle, this is a non-white player, is because he used, he used like nobody his body, that of someone recently escaped from a concentration camp camouflaged as a soccer player. I thought that was an astounding metaphor. Now, this book was published in 1947, so that's, I mean, the war's over, but I mean, hey, I think the Nuremberg trials are still going on. They got Nazis being executed and all this. Toto, remember that? Um, so, I mean, it's right in the time period where people, all of this language and the experience of World War II and, and all of that would have been really, really fresh. Uh, and this is a time, even though you had, I think, I could be wrong, I have to double check on this, but I suspect you would have higher rates, higher illiteracy rates at this time period. But you still, the people who could read, it would be a very literate society. You don't have... Uh, television everywhere so it'd be lots of people who you know the only way that you're going to get any information read the newspaper listening to the radio what's happening the the Nuremberg as I said Nuremberg trials and all of that so all that would have been really fresh when this book was first published in 1947 but I mean dang a metaphor that somebody looks like they just escaped from a concentration camp Yikes, like I do not think you would be like you and Kyrie Irvin fitting to be uh majorly picketed, boycotted, anti Semite, like I do not think that sort of line would ride today. I could be totally wrong. Um He says He's talking about the official uh who he thinks they're trying to manipulate him so he's not gonna throw a flag, Juca. Uh, and he says, Juca, he had to throw the flag because they kept violating the rules. And if he didn't do it, that he would end up on the blacklist. One, I would like to know what that term is in Portuguese, blacklist. Uh, but two, that to me, the words reveal so much about the global nature of white supremacy racism that you have the same types of metaphors and phrases and ways of relating information ideas all over the world. They don't have a blue list in Brazil. They don't have a yellow list or whatever else. They have a black list. This could have even been translated totally different. It could have just been, you know, I'm afraid that I'll be sanctioned. You know, if I don't throw a flag, I won't be like, no, 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 no. They're going to put me, they're going to they're gonna nigger me. Put me on the nigger list if I don't do right. Dang, same thing with Othello and everything. Everybody gets that. We got this crazy nigger, crazy for the white woman. If I want to articulate somebody who is stone crazy out of his mind over something or someone, Othello, the nigra, like we got those representations all over the world. Can't be ignorant about white supremacy racism if you're classified as white in any geographic location. They got you and we haven't even heard the racist jokes in this book, which would also be a big part of that educational process and how people relate, talk, transfer information. Uh, when Cairo had gone to Alvaro Chavez, many people were scandalized. How could a Fluminense allow a Cairo, a street urchin, to wear its jersey? That uh, it was a big time part of the first part of the book, I think, and talking about the no count street urchins and the black and mulatto players, and Ew, we don't want them around. They can't go to school, and they're out in the garbage pit kicking and and making their own big black balls. Remember that? 
that bounced better and were sturdier and all of that. And now it came back big towards the end of the book, the street urchin, still the non-white and black players and uh, city of God. That's what that whole movie is about. Negro street urchins in the 21st century. Um, Cairo did not even look like he had done anything extraordinary. He was a Rui Barbosa after a speech. Everyone was standing, applauding in the ecstasy of admiration and the Bahian like a statue, which he had already was Carrero displayed his expressionless pallid face. I think that phrase has been used in this book before meaning white. And I said, it's not just white, but it's normally white as in like sickly white ghostly white. Like you might be at death's doorstep. Like, Oh my God, do we have a mortician? We don't even need a doctor. Like, ooh, Undertaker present. My goodness. That type of white pallid face that of an and see they give it to me right there I just got to keep reading that of an anemic mulatto now come on you got red blood cell problems an anemic mulatto that means you definitely on uh definitely on death's doorstep with dull deep set eyes a thin weak mustache niggas with kinky hair and a closed mouth on which not even the ghost of a smile was playing. I told you, pallid, it means ghostly white, sickly white, cemetery white. Despite this, the admiration for the mulatto or black man did not grow. Now, when you have a sentence that, and I mean, that's direct, period. That's the end of the sentence, which I love. Make it plain. But I mean, dang, if that's it, I thought we've been lied to I thought this was about this book was about hey man the black man came up man they're doing it in soccer man they got opportunities and once they got that door open man they got out there and put that bicycle kick on them and we got gratums and all over that no that's not what we read in this book now not at all now we're almost done just like many of the other times white people talk about racism they lie and greatly minimize let's see says an exception would only be made for the mulattoes and blacks of one's own club where you could feel like they're okay if you know them we drafted them these are raccoons right uh whom one was obliged to defend even then it's like uh, i guess we'll root for these coons eh? and even then with caution see there see there see there come on even uh carlito roca who when he took control of a team was a father uh, to the players serving them eggnog and raw sugar treats. It sounded like a horse, right? That's what you they give sugar cubes to horses, don't they? Isn't that? Opening to them, his full wallet did not neglect when dealing with mulattoes and blacks to put himself on sure footing. And then he gets into the whole ruse where he lies to them and says that mango with kachaka kills. Now, we've heard all these antics about the white guys. They got to go out to the shindig and dance with other white players and act a fool and do all this. I didn't hear nothing about we got to, you know, come up with some sort of lie to trick these white players to keep them sober. I haven't heard that at all. If anything, I've just heard black players skillfully, logically saying, I'm not going to drink with you all deuces. But with the black players and then see even that something so stupid mango with Kachaka killed like you've got people who have been kept so ill informed and uneducated that they don't know anything like they make drinks right with mango not that I know from first hand experience right I'm just saying I've heard uh, that they do alcoholic beverages with mango and 
pineapple and brag about that sort of thing in these types of environments, right? They just had carnival. I am sure a white person or eight had some sort of alcoholic concoction, prescription medication and all that with mango makes it even better. Can't even taste the Percocet if you get the mango in in time. I'm just saying, when you got folks, and this is in the same era with Bill Russell and the Haints and everything, we've heard so much in this book about black people, uh, so-called mulattoes, even some of the white people being illiterate, they can't read, can't even sign their name. It would be pretty easy to dupe these sort of people who can't read, no schooling, no, they don't know anything, can't even spell mango. Oh, 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 oh. mango and kachaka, you know, that kills you, you'll grow a third foot, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ooh, get the mangoes away from me. Master deceiver. It's right up with the Haints, man. That Bill Russell second win, we talked about the Haints back in uh, Monroe, Louisiana. Big impact on Gus T. I will remember that one for a minute. Anywho, uh, let me see. Did we miss the email? Until com. if you have written comments on the text. And double check. Let me see. Right. I do not see hands presently I will keep an eye out uh, as I think we all commented uh, at the beginning I'm very aware challenging book but wow I think just if you can manage to pay attention it will definitely be worthy of your focus uh, particularly with the current events I know it can be difficult to kind of be mindful there's so many things happening on the planet and Nashville and is Trump going to be arrested even that's going to be wacky because it could be Trump gets arrested Bolsonaro gets arrested like wow transnational white supremacy overlap I'm going to copyright that Gus T anywho we will get to the second audio segment so we're like right at the very beginning of 5.3 I think this is the second to last chapter. Almost done. Uh, The Catherine Massey Book Club Context of White Supremacy Audio Segment Number Two For this reason, he imposed a dry law on him, which Gerandir Matos would flout like a 1920s smuggler in the United States of America. I say a smuggler and not a gangster, because around here, the smuggler is almost an old friend or a comrade. However much they have tried, the police have not been able to scare the Brazilian. The Brazilian still sees in the smuggler who arranges things what Veve saw in Gerander Matos, a friend. With no American cigarettes, no whiskey, no real scotch, no French perfumes, who would work to arrange them, exposing himself to the threat of being imprisoned and put on trial? Except that Girondair Matos exposed himself to no more than a scolding from Flavio Costa. And, even so, he would still take the proper precautions, exaggerating them even. He had free passage at Gavea, where Flamengo would practice, and at Sao Januario, where the Carioca side would practice, serving as a kind of unofficial director of the club and of the federation. They called him Electric Neck because he would constantly stick out and pull in his neck, which gave him an air, if not 
of helplessness than of innocence. On top of that, he was an inveterate flamingo. The red and black fans understood him, the admiration and enthusiasm for Veve. The fans of a particular team divided themselves by players. None could care for all of them or please all of them. Girandere Mathos had chosen Veve. This was in order to secretly pass him during the pregame gatherings at Gavea or Sao Januario, perhaps by slipping it beneath a cushion, one of those flat bottles whose name does not occur to me, and I don't know if it has a special name, a kind of curved cigarette case, with the difference being that it does not open on the side, with a light touch on the spring, but rather on the top, by unscrewing the threaded lid. It was a beautiful piece of metal, almost like Vermeil, proclaiming the words, Made in USA, a reminder of the times of Al Capone. His task completed, Juranvir Matos's neck would be moving around even more, as if the ceremony, almost liturgical, of smuggling cachaça to Veve had excited him, speeding up the uncontrollable movements of half-rotating his chin, then tilting it to the right and to the left. Gerander Matos's mission was not a secret from José Lins do Rego, who was almost concerned with the delivery or not of the salvevic dose of rum. All good? inquired José Lins do Rego. With a cherry on top, responded Gerander Matos, who shook his neck like a dog wags its tail to demonstrate greater joy. But the mulatto and black men paid for this. Nobody remembered the white cachaça drunks, only the mulatto and black ones. It was the white ones, the whites, who judged the mulattoes and blacks. It should not be surprising that they were more complacent about the weakness of whites, and perhaps in the judgment of the blacks by the whites, more than racism, which did not exist in every club, the background of the mulattoes and blacks coming from all corners of Brazil had an influence, though only in relation to their mulattoes and blacks, the ones chosen by them. How had they been born? How had they reached manhood? What environment did they grow out of? What physical and moral flaws did they bring with them? They were good with the ball. Of that there was no doubt. Many arrived, however, carrying four crosses. Some had to be reconstructed physically, so to speak. In truth, not only mulattoes and blacks, whites too, refugees of soccer. Each club became the doctor and lawyer of its players while encouraging worse restrictions on the players of other clubs, especially if they were mulattoes and blacks. There were mulattoes and blacks who did not concern themselves with all of this, who went so far as to offer to throw a game, 
mulattoes and blacks from small clubs with uncertain salaries and even more uncertain beasts. Minister Joao Lira Filho relates that when he was president of Botafogo, he received a strange phone call. Dr. Lira, how are you? I wish you good health. Thank you, said the not yet minister. With whom do I have the pleasure of speaking? With Francisco, Dr. Lira. Francisco? Joao Lira Filho tried unsuccessfully to remember a Francisco, just a Francisco. If it were an intimate Francisco, he would recognize the voice. Francisco, keeper of Bon Suceso, Dr. Lira, clarified the voice on the other end. The memory of Joao Lira Filho began to materialize as if he were pulling a record from a file. Francisco, who was on Bon Suceso, had debuted with Sao Cristoval and was now going from club to club, going downhill, perhaps because of his alcoholism, which he could not overcome. He was a tall mulatto with an almost round face and dull eyes, a good goalkeeper. On a good day, he would catch everything. A great pleasure, Francisco. Joao Lira Filho waited for some kind of request for a job. I'm in good shape, Dr. Lira. I'm very happy for you, Francisco, Joao Filho said, and remembered, putting himself on his guard, that it was the week of a Botafogo versus Bon Suceso matchup. Look what good shape I'm in, Dr. Lira, insisted Francisco on the other end of the line. May you be happy, Francisco. Dr. Lira, Dr. Lira, repeated Francisco. Look what good shape I'm in. The one who warns is a friend. I thank you kindly, Francisco. The game fell on the anniversary of the founding of Botafogo and was in General Severiano. Joao Lira Filio was on the platform of honor surrounded by the old guard of Botafogo, the glorious one. Francisco caught everything, and Botafogo ended up losing. And when the referee blew the final whistle, shaking his arms in the middle of a sepulchral silence in General Severiano, Francisco made a point of walking with a smooth gait, a street urchin smile, rounding his face even more, by the platform of honor and greeting Joao Lira Filho with a subtle sign, not to make a scene but to remind him or re-remind him about the telephone call from a friend. Didn't I tell you, Dr. Lira, that I was in good shape? Was Joao Lira Filho's not very loose translation. Nothing was ever proven but a lot was said about winning a game on Thursday which was the practice day for most of the clubs. There were those who believed piously in the bribery of players, principally the mulattoes and blacks. When someone in a club was thinking about assuring a victory by putting his hand into his pocket, he accepted with absolute good faith the insinuated venality of a mulatto or a black man. If it was proposed that he bribe a white man, he might hesitate or even give up on the idea.
especially because one had to trust whoever was going to talk to or soften the player on the other team. Or whisper to him, as one said, it was always a conversation at a table in a cafe in low voices, in a whisper. At Botafogo, the one who offered himself to provide the service was Goosebumps. He would get two, three, sometimes five thousand cruzeiros, put them into his pocket, and go out. Almost always, if not always, he kept the money, either because the player to be approached was incorruptible or because he trusted that the Botafogo team was much stronger than Bangu, Bon Suceso, Madiorera, Sao Cristobal, Olaria, and Canto do Rio. When the game began, Goosebumps would put his hands together and pray to the saints. He was short and stocky with grimy, faded blonde hair and a stubbly mustache, quite rough. Next to Carlita Rocha, he would practically disappear. He stood next to Carlito as if seeking protection. Once in a while, Botafogo would lose, with the player who was supposedly being bribed making their lives miserable. If it was a goalie, he wouldn't let even a thought past him. If it was a striker, he would be banging them into Botafogo's net. They would call out goosebumps. And so-and-so, who was in your pocket? It's a this, it's a that. There are no words for it. And he'd promise to smash the guy's face in, or if not smash his face in, because the other one would likely flatten goosebumps, then not give him another cent. If one comes to offer himself again, you guys will see, not another cent. The problem was that Carlita Rocha would not let himself be deceived for nothing. At certain times, like during a defensive play by the bot player, supposedly paid to allow one goal by the opponent, Carlita Rocha would look at Goosebumps like one looks at a worm. And Goosebumps would crawl like a worm to placate Carlito Rocha. Sometimes he would declare himself guilty, but he would proclaim more loudly his Botafogo pride. Carlita Rocha, for example, might think that the point-blank shot by the bought forward was defendable. Sure, Oswaldo, the post, had thrown himself toward the corner, but the ball was already in the back of the net. That one, Mr. Carlito, not even Christ, said Goosebumps, having forgotten that the striker was supposed to have taken the money still folded in his pocket. Don't be an imbecile, responded Carlito Rocha angrily, offended. Christ catches everything. With Christ in the goal, the post would grow together, like this. And Carlita Rocha brought together his two pointer fingers, squeezing them together with force, so that not even the shadow of a doubt would pass between them, much less soccer ball. The, these goosebumps gave mulattoes and blacks a bad name, and there were many more than one might imagine. For this reason, the opinion held about mulattoes and the blacks of the other teams was the worst possible. It was what explained 
So many mulattoes wishing to pass as white. So many blacks getting their hair straightened to flee the condemnation of the Lamartine Babo March. To this day eternalized in carnivals. Your hair does not deny it. Zeze Procopio, a mulatto with short wavy hair, did not worry so much about his hair. What revealed his color for him naturally, because he had mulatto gray in his skin, was his flat nose. Instead of having his hair straightened, which perhaps would have turned him even more mulatto, he submitted himself to what was still rare in that era, plastic surgery. His flat nose was straightened and tapered, and Zeze Procopio felt himself to be, if not white, almost white, someone who had passed by scraping, as the radio announcers said regarding a wide shot that gave the impression of almost a goal through the color line. Only those who knew Zeze Procopio well could understand how much it weighed on him to be mulatto, based on the detail of the plastic surgery to his nose. Because Zeze Procopio was a mixture of Moliere's miser and Dickens' moneylender, he only loosened his purse strings to buy a present for his son. His avarice and usury were attitudes of defense, exaggerated without a doubt, even taken to anecdotal extremes against the extreme poverty that seemed to be waiting patiently for him to take off his cleats in order to throw him in the gutter. It's certain that Zeze Procopio was only worrying about his salvation after he stopped playing soccer. If a colleague needed a little money, Zeze Procopio demanded 50% interest for a week or at the most 10 days. He would not lend for less. Almost always, the Botafogo player wanted the money because of a woman. It was not to bring bread home, which if it were so, there would have to be someone who gave without an argument, giving or loaning without charging interest. Zeze Procopio, the mulatto from Minas Gerias, would point his knife at the chest of his colleague. He lent 500 in order to get back 750 on the day of repayment. When the day to repay arrived, there was Zeze Procopio right next to the cash register, knife in hand, because he took payments with a knife. If someone tried to default on a debt to him, that person would be marked for the rest of his life. As far as anyone knows, Zeze Procopio did not knife anyone, but it was a pacifying point that if it came to it, he would not hesitate an instant. Thus, the terror he inspired. The debtors could, at most, after paying in full the 750 for 500 ask for another loan on the same terms. But nobody should call him a usurer. One borrowed money from him like a favor from a father to a son. Only thusly, with the terms of 50% interest, would Zeze Procopio accept and grumbling, you guys need to think about the future. This way, you'll end up picking a paper in the street.
It was the fear of ending up like so many others, picking a paper in the street, which had made of him a miser and a usurer. A real penny pincher, smoking only gifted cigarettes lit with someone else's match, not only going not going out except on foot in order not to pay for the tram, only going to the movies if it was free, saving everything he received and then investing the money with the intuition of a born financier. For example, he bought enormous plots of land around the Pampulha in Belo Horizonte. For this reason, no one at General Severiano understood the wasting of money on plastic surgery. The only explanation was that he had gone crazy. Suddenly, without rhyme or reason, Zeze Procopio, in a flight of insanity, had ripped up his money. This was so much the case that it only happened once to never happen again. On the contrary, each day the spirit of the miser and usurer was becoming more accentuated. The explanation came suddenly after practice with everyone in the changing room, some changing their clothes, others bathing. It was the old changing room of Botafogo, the benches in the room in the middle, on one side the bathroom, on the other the beds lined up as in a hospital. Zeze Procopio was taking off his cleats. Then Teo, also from Minas Gerais, but white and very handsome, appeared, coming out of the shower, still wet, drying himself with a face towel. To economize, Botafogo, like other clubs, did not buy bath towels. The players had to dry themselves with face towels. And there came Teo, who played as a winger, wiggling a little because he was vain regarding his well-shaped body and his movie star face, as well as his brilliant, full, almost Argentine hair. He placed himself in front of the mirror, and while he combed his hair, clothed only with a face towel around his neck, he swayed on his feet to the rhythm of a radio samba. Zeze Procopio saw him from behind. He could not resist and made a joke. The others laughed and Teo turned red. Feeling embarrassed, he touched on the sore spot of Zeze Procopio, which was his color. The mulatto gray that he had tried to disguise with plastic surgery to narrow his nose. Teo regretted it immediately. In the mirror, he saw Zeze Procopio grab the knife and stand up. It was a scene that Joao Saldanha has not forgotten to this day. Zeze Procopio had hardly stood up with knife in hand when Teo made a run for it. He went out, nude, through the changing room door and gained the field. With Zeze Procopio almost nude behind him, the knife glowing as if it were catching fire in the light of sunset, which was blood red. Only those who saw it could believe it. The whiteness of the nude Teo pulling down the darkness, which was falling like a mist over Botafogo's field. The gray of the nude Zeze Procopio, the dagger before him. 
and the running around the dark green lawn. It was not just those two. It was all the players of Botafogo spreading out through the field, some nude, some in shorts, and it was Joao Saldanha, very thin, and Carlito Rocha, enormous. Only when he found himself in front of Carlito Rocha with open arms, his voice thin but energetic, asking him for the knife, did Zeze Procopio stop. Give me the knife, Zeze Procopio. Zeze Procopio was purple with rage. He had began to shake. He turned the knife over to Carlito Rocha but said, It's for you, sir. If not, I would shred his face. He wanted to put an end to the vanity of the handsome white man. In such a way that no plastic surgery could save him. And the one who would wiggle in front of Teo, showing his profile with the thin nose of a white man, would be Zeze Procopio. A mulatto had the recourse of plastic surgery if his flat nose denounced his race, more than or just as much as can't deny it here. And regarding the hair, there was always the way out of having it straightened. Many mulattoes passed as whites, even in their federation files. The medical department did not want to offend them, using the very elastic Brazilian concept of color. He who could scrape the exam would pass. Instead of a mulatto, a mestizo. Or then, in a broader generalization, brown-haired. And the black man who wished he wasn't black, straightened hair did not make him less black unless to favor the hypothesis of a son of a white man and a black woman. As in the case of Leonidas da Silva, who was exactly this, son of a black mother and a Portuguese father. Even so, he had to have his rebellious hair straightened. Gentile Cardoso never denied his condition of being black. On the contrary, it was like he proclaimed it, not out of racial pride, a kind of racism in reverse, but out of hurt. Less the condition of his color, which God had given him, than that of the barriers he saw raised all over against the man of color in Brazil. If he were not black, he would be directing teams of the big clubs, and they would not deny him the honor of coaching the Brazilian side. For who had been the first Brazilian coach, the first real coach, the black Gentile Cardosa, using a blackboard and more, with tactics drawn in chalk, the introducer of the Chapman system in Brazil? But then the occasion arrived, Fluminense, the aristocratic club of Laranjeras, as it was still called in the papers, called up Gentile Cardosa. He was going to be the first black man to command a Fluminense team. It had been the frustrated ambition of Domingos Taguia to be the first black man to wear the tricolor jersey. Gentile Cardoso was going to realize himself as a black man. It was one thing to be a player and another to be a coach, especially in the era of Flavio Costa and Ondinho Vieira, true dictators. 
Brazilian soccer had discovered the coach after delivering Dory Krushner to martyrdom and was yielding himself to him entirely. Gentile Cardoso signed the contract with Fluminense one day and four days later he appeared in Alvaro Chavez to take over the team. He had prepared himself for that glorious moment during those four days between the signing of the contract and the presentation of the players. It seemed that everyone had been advised in advance. Few practices had ever awoken such curiosity, such bits of mischief among the photographers. The crowd of photographers was that of a big match, and thus arose Gentile Cardoso. He wore the gray track pants of an athlete, the elastic of the ankles also gray, hugging his basketball shoes. His large bust was covered by a windbreaker of the same color as the track pants, with two large pockets on the chest, one on each side. Around his neck was a necklace of thick rope, like an aiguillette, from which hung, like a crucifix, the whistle, perched on his head a high baseball cap with a wide brim, and in his right hand, ready to be lifted to his mouth in an epic gesture of a cornetist, a megaphone. Gentile Cardoso was going to direct the practice of Fluminense with whistle and megaphone. When it was time to end practice, the whistle. When it was time to give an order, the megaphone. There were scandalized tricolor fans. One had never seen anything of the like in Alvaro Chavez. The newspapers commenting on the fact seemed like European newspapers speaking of a Brazil with the capital of Buenos Aires where there was a city called Rio de Janeiro with snakes going down Rio Branco Avenue. Fluminense, however, when they signed a contract, honored it, and Gentile Cardoso promised the championship, although he had one condition. Give me Adamer, and I'll give you a championship. Adamer Meneses, before going to Vasco, had almost stayed another season in Fluminense. He was the lead scorer of the championship and was a free agent. It had been a demand of old Meneses, known in Pernambuco at the time of sport club Recife as Mosquito, because in the name of his son, he was biting the club, and his bites sometimes drew blood. Fluminense held on to old Meneses, and so Adamir went to Fluminense for the time being. Now, Gentile Cardoso just needed keep his promise, and he did keep it, although to do so required a playoff. The decisive goal was made by Adamir. At the victory party in Alvaro Chavez, the German, a fan who always positioned himself in the middle of the fans of the other team in order to receive real blows and be able to yell with the taste of blood in his mouth the name of Fluminense, drank French champagne poured out by tricolor fans in delirium, which flowed among the toes that had shot the ball of the championship goal. 
Not even with all this did Gentile Cardoso last at Fluminense, and not just because Adamir Meneses, the great weapon of the championship, had returned for his weight in gold to Sao Januario. All it took was the opportunity of the return of Odinho Vieira to arise for all hesitation at Alvaro Chavez to disappear. Ondinho Vieira had created a new era in the history of Brazilian soccer. It was not for nothing that he had read Oswald Spengler, the prophet of the decline of the West. The era of successive wars is going to begin. Not just among nations, of which the Second World War was an example that had recently ended, well before that, soon after the entrance of Brazil into the war, Ondinho Vieira declared, with the responsibility of a Vasco coach, the championship is a war. And a war like the one being waged in the four corners of the world without quarter. Ondinho Vieira's phrase had an importance that one cannot stress enough because it was accepted without debate. There were suggestions of war in the newspapers every day. Brazil was geographically long from the horrors of the bombardment of London, of the Battle of Stalingrad, of Guadalcanal, of Iwo Jima, but the soccer championship was getting violent around here, exacerbating the passions of almost enemies. This is what explains the tone of war that imposed itself in the games and above all, the utilization of arms available to the clubs or to the imagination or partisan journalists or fans. Each big club had its Goebbels, its Gestapo, its fifth column. Chapter 5, Part 4 The championship was a war. Ondinho Vieira had not invented anything. He had just pointed out a fact. It's true that many people had not realized the change that had taken place in the dispute of a soccer title. It was enough for it to be identified by every fan, coach, director, journalist, or announcer connected to a club to try to carry out their appropriate roles. I did not include in this list the player, in this case, the soldier. Although some were more than soldiers, some rising as high as sergeants of the York type, lieutenants, majors, captains, colonels, and even generals, battle geniuses. I did not include the player soldier because he would always be the victim, the cannon fodder, the one who dies the most, who dies in mass, only to earn, after it is all over, with the arrival of peace, the eternal flame of the unknown soldier whose name only God knows. And it was easy to perceive the transformation of the championship into an authentic war with bombardments and everything else. The newspapers even printed headlines to announce the Berlin bombardment in Ferrer Street after the first great bombardment on a soccer field. 
Bangu's field was still on Ferrer Street near the station. In the old days, it was called the Enchanted Field. It was up there, they said, that Bangu hardly lost. Down here, they hardly won. Thus, the simple explanation for Enchanted. What was influential, almost always decisively, was not the field, a real carpet of English grass, soft, good for the flow of the game. It is better for the teams of the big clubs than for the team of Bangu, of the small club that it returned to being after the 1933 title. When the championship became a war, Guillermo de Silviera Filio had taken over Bangu. Thus, the plan of the great bombardment was able to be carried out. It is not known why the victim chosen for the experience of bombardment like that suffered by Ber Ber Berlin in reprisal for that of London was Sao Cristobal. To get an idea, 4,000 bombs were bought, cherry bombs and rockets, and those were tied together so that the explosions would be successive and shake the earth and darken the sky. One can find the explanation for why Bangu was the first, not in throwing bombs because the connection between soccer and Sao Joao, between soccer and all the traditional Brazilian festivities, was an old one. In the greater importance of the Sao Joao festival in the suburban neighborhoods, which were akin to little towns in the interior, where, where there is more space for big bonfires and where the population traditions, the popular traditions, were almost indistinguishable from religious ties which they were and around there continue to be. The war tactic was not just bombardment. It was above all preceding propaganda that one made about it. It was the process of the war of nerves used so successfully by the Nazis to soften populations and nations. It was going to be the biggest bombardment of the history of soccer this was what was printed in the papers. Thousands of cherry bombs and rockets had been bought. Pica Bahia, Sao Cristobal's coach, an Argentinian, locked up the targeted players, cadets, as they were called, in the changing room, and distributed cotton wads among them. They were for the whites, mulattoes, and blacks of Sao Cristobal to plug their ears with. Sao Cristobal would enter the field only after the bombardment had ended. When the last whiff of the gray smoke clouds from the explosions had disappeared, seating close together on the benches of the visitor's changing room of Rua Ferda Street field, their bodies huddled, their heads down their hands covering their ears, as if the wads of cotton were not enough, the players of Sao Cristobal waited with tense nerves like violin strings ready to snap. 
No sound reached them, only the changing room floor trembled, shaken by the explosions happening out there. Bangu had entered the field. Already deaf because of the cotton wads stuffed in their ears, the players of Sao Cristoval closed their eyes. Joel, the Afro-Indigenous goalie, seemed as if he had malaria. Mundinho, a dark-skinned mulatto, who played at back next to Augusto Costa, had hardened his body entirely tense. Santo Cristo, the mulatto who kicked the penalty wide and threw a fit in that game against Botafogo after Zarsi had whispered a bribe offered to him, was on the verge of hallucinating. Alfredo, who put I after his name to distinguish himself from Alfredo II of Vasco, blacker than he, felt his muscles aching. Nestor, a light-skinned mulatto, had suddenly turned into steel. The whites were in no better condition. Only Augusto Costa tried to preserve the dignity of someone who considered himself above such things, but inside he was trembling. Like the others, imagining the bombing of Berlin. Though they heard nothing, the players of Sao Cristobal were imagining and they were imagining in the place of cherry bombs and rockets, real bombs, tons of TNT. Finally, after a wait that seemed like an eternity, Pica Bea gave the signal. The Sao Cristobal players could remove the cotton from their ears. The bombardment had ended. Everything had gone quiet. The time had come to enter the field. When they arose from the long benches of the changing room, the players of Sao Cristobal had shaky legs. Some smiled awkwardly while others tried to puff out their chests. Not even a little cloud of gunpowder smoke could be seen. It was a beautiful, clear afternoon. What use was the blue sky? The transparency of the air, the caress of the light breeze, like the fingers of a woman. The players of Sao Cristobal were defeated. They did not resist a bangu aglow with the explosion of 4,000 bombs in its favor. On top of that, the referee was Mario Viana with the haircut of a German soldier. It was war. It was a thrashing. Alrighty, a thrashing. Context of white supremacy we have talked about that before Catherine Massey book club we've talked about that before the firecrackers and all of that like when they do that at the Super Bowl and some of these other white ball games even 4th of July really battle simulation we can't go out bomb nuke Hiroshima Nagasaki stick it to old Tojo we can't go out and do that for reals let's at least pretend let's at least make believe we'll get some old cherry bombs we'll get 4,000 cherry bombs we'll get some of these old firecrackers and everything and we'll blow up enough of them that we'll black out the sky what 
does it mean to be in fact what does it mean to be white but in fact that really reminded me what white people say is one of the greatest movies of all time we want to talk about world war ii films Patton, just the first five minutes you can watch the whole movie just the first five minutes he says man we're gonna go out there and kill him kill him by the bushel oh battle i love it so <laughs> like that is that is white culture get to go out and do some bombing and killing oh i love it Woo. the number 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate please do not wait till the last minute if you have thoughts observations the email until justice at gmail.com get to the rest of our emails as well listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive hopefully learning a little bit about racism white supremacy in many different parts of the world and why Dr. Welsing encouraged us to read more important than our screen time hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button in the top right corner you'll see the links for PayPal Venmo Cash App enormous thanks to all the folks who have invested kept us on the air 14 years now one of our investors uh, he wrote in picking up the rest of got confused oh, okay the rest of his commentary I left off at number 11 number 12 page 224 to 225 you're Matos with Veve keep him from drinking look under the bed tube of toothpaste keep baby from alcohol small mulatto flathead v-shaped face eyes of a mongol mandarin mustache uh, need little of costume chinese tunic 1920 smuggler not a gangster urandir matos the electric neck flat bottle fans curved cigarette case piece of metal vermeil reminder of alcohol uh, Veve was a pathetic victim in need of help due to his addiction. Addiction. Ridicule him, his face, his eyes, put him in a clown costume. They love to keep us in clown costumes. That's, you know, worldwide. Uh, and then in the end, just another victim worthy of no help, a smuggler. Ne'er do well. That That is that is us. Incidentally, I, I thought from this passage as well, Alcapa, like white white gangsters are worldwide celebrities like even in South America I guess maybe at this time period this is kind of his heyday Al Capone was probably known worldwide but I mean as a white criminal white thugs known all over the that's our godfather that's how we relate to we love these white criminals you know uh, let's see that's you know slavers really uh, number 13 page 225 nobody remembered the white Kachaka drunks only the mulatto and black ones. Whites judge the mulattoes and blacks more complacent about weakness of whites. What does it mean 
to be white. I mean, we look for any reason, right, to criticize the nigra. I think that's where victims of racism, that's where we get that from, to be so overly critical of other non-white people. But particularly uh, with regards to drinking, because as I said, we've read so much about drinking in this book. This is our 11th session, three months of this book. That's what we've heard for three months. White people, shindigs. We had to stop and look at that. Baile, how I know what that is. Come on. Shindig in Portuguese, how I know what that is. Drinking, that's all we heard about. White people going out to drink and what I said, non-white people having sense enough to say, hey, I don't drink with crackers. I'm good. I don't know how they say crackers in Portuguese, but nah, I'm good. I don't care if we're on the same team, whatever. I know how y'all get down. I'm good. Page, or excuse me, number 14, page 226 to 227. Mulattoes and blacks offer to throw a game, small clubs, uncertain salaries, uncertain beasts. That's the uh, payoff, right, that you get for throwing the game or, what, or winning the game or whatever you do with the game. Those who believed piously in the bribery of players, principally mulattoes and blacks, bribe a white man, hesitate and give up on the idea. The non-white players were continually mistreated and in some cases had jobs outside of soccer to make a living uncertain salaries made them easy targets for bribes more than a few black players have been caught up in ncaa basketball point shaving scandals see c h n i sports notable point shaving scandals in ncaa history sean isabella that's from uh, june of 2018 we just heard about that uh, with all the sports booking we were talking about that a couple weeks back uh, and they were talking about that in college sports same thing with young black males not the best education it's not like they have a, a harvard ivy league pedigree uh in their immediate family so-called uh but they're easy to manipulate you know if you want to get them to do this or do that or throw a game or miss a shot or you know whatever um let's see pay or number 15 page 227 to 228 goosebumps put his hands together Botafogo lose, promised to smash the guy's face in. Carlito Roca would look at Goosebumps like at a worm. Goosebumps gave mulattoes and blacks a bad name. Mulattoes wishing to pass as whites. Blacks, hair straightened. The nickname Goosebumps is interesting, isn't it? Most of the, the nicknames for the black and non-white players have been, you know. Uh, the author does not provide background regarding it. Getting one more page, or this is number 16, page 228. Zay Zay. Procopio, mulatto, short, wavy hair, mulatto gray in his skin, flat nose, submitted to what was rare in that era, plastic surgery, flat nose, straightened, tapered, felt himself almost white, passed by, ska, 1940s, uh, radio announcers, wide shot, thought the color line, fascinating that surgery was used by non-white victims in the 1940s, to mutilate themselves into some poor facsimile of whiteness. I always thought the use of surgery was a more recent phenomenon. That was startling news to myself as well because I, hey, I'm ignorant about everything and I certainly am ignorant, ignorant about the history of plastic surgery. But I mean, you have people who die. I mean, hey, hey, hey. They do all that with the Brazilian butt lift. I mean, if there's going to be any time to bring that up on the cows, we got to do it while we're reading the book now, right? So, I mean, they got all that about the Brazilian butt lift and uh, the late Kanye 
West's yay. Uh, his mother, Dr. Donda West, she died in plastic sur- or yeah, plastic surgery. I believe that was circa 2007. That's still kind of a dangerous can be surgery even at this point uh, with a lot of risks involved, especially depending on where you go to get the procedure done. What type of procedure uh, are you getting done? And, you know, all the rest of it that can be even now uh, a risky deal. I cannot imagine what that would be like almost a hundred years ago. Like, Jesus Christ, man, like, yeah, I would, I cannot imagine. Like, you got to go to some racist doctor, wherever this is in Brazil, and they do this. What type of anesthesia do they have? I mean, wow. Uh, I'll pause there. I'll now double check. Folks have commentary. Don't wait till the last minute if you're on the phone line. And I'll get in some of my notes as well. Hope uh, folks uh, listening in live archives are learning a lot. I myself was in that spot. Like, man, this is a hard book. Man, get done with this. We read something easier, whatever, and all the rest of it. Not all this goofy soccer, because I'm not a soccer fan, so I don't, you know, I don't know anything about the World Cup and all that anyway. But as I said, the school events. In Brazil, it happened the same day as the Nashville, Tennessee shooting on Monday of this week. All of that happening at the same time. Like, we might be doing this again if they arrest President Trump, former President Trump, anytime, next couple days, weeks, whatever. The same thing could happen to Bolsonaro. Fascinating time to do a comparison contrast. Uh, the system of white supremacy racism is global me scroll back through here get some of my notes for the second audio segment let's see alcohol that's what we picked up that okay second audio segment uh, we got the oh, 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 come back there we go Second audio segment, we got the Electric Neck nickname. That's why I said a lot of these nicknames for these players. We even had the one, remember, way back when he was nicknamed Johnson. Jack Johnson, the black boxer in the States at the time. But then Johnson is also used for, you know, genitalia. So I said the, the nicknames for the non-white and black, yeah, non-white players. Um... I already mentioned the Al Capone. They go through all this where they have to sneak liquor to the white players and they have these real elaborate devices where they can store liquor. And I mean, they have all kinds of craziness like that now. Gee whiz. Um, He says he has the audacity at the bottom of 225. In the judgment of blacks by the whites, more than racism which did not exist in every club. WTF, man. Like, you're going to have to give me a footnote, something. I haven't heard anything in this book that would make me believe that there were certain clubs where it did not matter. Show up, let's get down. You're not a street urchin. We're not doing any of that old flim-flam stuff. You know, we, you are good to go. You're not mistreated. You don't have to get out here on the soccer field and, you know, act like you can't 
kick a white person if they get on your nerves or whatever else. Just come out, play the game. We just got soccer players here. That's all we got. That is, I mean, are you serious? They don't have that now. They don't have that now. That's what it's just lying through us throughout the book. Like white people can just do this, write books uh, about racism, white supremacy, and just tell big, I mean, anything. We've read almost the whole book now, like 80% of it for real. There's only one more chapter left. Have you heard anything that sounds like, or how about this? Can you pick the club? Take a guess. If you think you've heard one club where there was no racism, you could be a Gratum, Fausto, any of these old, you know, negras, and you're cool in the gang. Come on. When thinking of the black and non-white players, he says, uh, coming from all corners of Brazil had an influence, though only in relation to their mulatto and blacks, the ones chosen by them. How had they been born? How had they reached manhood? You don't in the system of white supremacy. What environment did they grow out of? What physical and moral flaws did they bring with them they were good with the ball that kind of sounded sexual to me of that there was no doubt of course many arrived however carrying four crosses some had to be reconstructed physically so to speak even that what does that mean do you mean like plastic surgery we got to go and shear some of your negro nose off what do you mean we got to beat your rebellious kinky hair in line straighten it out a little bit what do you mean reconstruct it physically what do you mean I feel like I have to say that too many times in this book I don't know if that's something that's lost in translation but I mean Philo uh, should have given us more detail I, I think they talk about this book being poetic and the way that he wrote it like I am way more interested in detail it shouldn't be something where you have a phrase like that just because it sounds cute they had to be written. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Let's see. They talked, uh, they said th- there were those who believed piously, that's like a religion, in, bri- in the bribery of players, principally the mulattoes and blacks, of course, because they're easy to manipula- manipulate. We already said that. When someone in the club was thinking about assuring a victory by putting his hand into his pocket, he accepted, with absolute good faith, the insinuated venality of a mulatto or a black man. If it was proposed that he bribe a white man, he might hesitate or even give up on the idea. Now that says a lot to me. Folks can think about it, you know, you listen to the archive or whatever, you can come up with your own uh, assessment of this. But I mean, the reason the venality, the susceptibility, the vulnerability of the Negro is because they're victims of white supremacy. They do. I just said they do not grow into manhood. These are boys and gals. It's always easier to manipulate children. That's one. But the white player Now we already talked about. They said through this whole book, the, the black players, they were street urchins, right? They got in the soccer. The white players, they had jobs. They were doctors and lawyers and businessmen they weren't you know scrounging for a factory job you know I just do this in my free time when I'm not in law school or med school or whatever if that's the case you coming with your little piddling offer I don't know maybe I do this maybe I don't you know you get a cup of courage and I'll think about it. like oh no 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 nah, that's not reliable we got money on the line get me one of these street urchins over here get me one of these gratums and look here 
you know, do your mom want to starve? If you want her to have a biscuit, you know, some eggnog, get out there and make sure you miss that shot. That's a lot more reliable than we got some white man who, I don't know, you know, mess around, decide that he wants to win so they can go out and have more drinks tonight. I don't know. That's not reliable. I want the one like, we need a biscuit. I'm going to miss this shot. Whatever needs to happen, let's do it. I'm trying to eat. I got children that's got to eat. My parents got to eat. That's reliable. That boy is hungry. Delectable Negro. Let's see. Call them goosebumps, right? And they, they got the, uh, for the non-white people. <sighs> Let's see. Give the black player, even that, how does anyone give black and non-white players a bad name? It doesn't matter what you do. They already think of you as no count and you got to watch those boys, you know, they take all the bribes and got all these character flaws and all the like what are you talking about if that's what you think of me off top like I don't have to say anything I don't have to do anything that's what you already think of me how can someone give us a bad name you already think and conversely does anyone give white players a bad name when they go out and drink a chaka and do all this other stuff do they get a bad no okay Let's see. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got the phrases. We got the phrase. Let's see. The opinion held about the mulattoes and the blacks of the other teams that was the worst possible. Of course, it was what explained so many mulattoes wishing to pass as white. That's not what explains it. The system of white supremacy racism explains why that is still the case today, 2023. So many blacks getting their hair straightened to flee the condemnation of the Lamartine Babo March to this day eternalized in carnivals your hair does not deny it are you flipping serious is this still like a phrase of white supremacy racism like if people are trying to to lie about themselves or their ancestry or something of that nature and that's like a, res- a known response like your hair does not deny it Wow. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going to have to check that. I don't know if it's, is that like a Portuguese phrase? Is that one of those that you have to look in uh, Portuguese? And that's still like very common. People say that like similar to nigger in the wood pile. Have people heard that one? Oh my God. Are you serious? Oh my God. This... I'm stunned. I'm so I wish I had looked this up while we were going. There's so many things you have to look up. It's difficult to do so. Okay. Uh make sure I get it right. Here we go. Um references. Noel Rosa's Nationalistic Logic. Lusa Luso L U S O Brazilian Review. Oto Cabello. Now, nega mulata. Your hair does not deny it. Mulata. Oh, we left a word off. So it's your hair does not deny it. Mulata. Okay. I'm not going to read the Portuguese of that again because, you know, uh, but it goes more. Is one of the most 
famous carnival hits of all time it is a marcha a close relative of samba and the mainstay of carnival in the era the marcha was first recorded in december 1931 by the singer castro barbosa and became the hit of the 1932 carnival i don't even like what this so i mean hey if this is like a hit song and all of that at the carnival and everything this has to be like a phrase i don't know if they still say it in brazil like wow don't be trying to trick me and say that you are white your hair oh and they got the lyrics for the song gee whiz gee whiz just gee whiz global system of white supremacy learn a little bit about uh everything i'd be next time that we speak with uh mr uh, marquis treve black male uh he operates the black in brazil today he's been with us many times right at the end of the year ask him about that phrase like do they still say that and that still has significance and uh, jesus christ wow wow okay um this book should be called Negros with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer. We said that. Okay. Uh, Zeze Preocupio. Oh, and he says this here. Uh, that Zeze Preocupio, he would loan money but at a high interest rate, right? Mr. Fuller says you don't loan money anyway because you won't get it back in the system. So you never loan money. Uh, if you're giving it away, you just, you know, I'm giving it away, but I'm not, you don't loan money. Uh, he says his avarice and usury were attitudes of defense exaggerated without a doubt, even taken to anecdotal extremes against the extreme poverty that seemed to be waiting patiently for him to take off his cleats in order to throw him in the gutter. Now that is well written, but that is true. And that that is like true for whew, black people all over the world make a few nickels and white ball games or what have you for for one game two games one year whatever it is you get off that field you take off that jersey you put that ball down you step out of that boxing ring back to the favela for you Dennis Rodman talked about this I mean it's <clears throat> generations of Negro athletes have talked about that and that fear motivating a whole lot of incorrect behavior taking bribes playing a sport way too long which could cause further damage all kinds of things alcoholism uh, as far as anyone knows Zeze Preocopia did not knife anyone but it was a pacifying point that if it came to it he would not hesitate in an instant uh Oh, wait a minute, that's not even the for real knife incident that I wanted to talk about. So we got the plastic uh, surgery. And they explained it that he had gone crazy. The system of white supremacy racism does drive you crazy. When you are mistreated just because of the color of your skin, not that you did anything. And conversely, individuals, because they are pale, are gods, kings and queens of the world and have just said about their existence to mistreat you just because they are pale and you are not yes that is enough to drive you crazy and that this is the entire known universe this system wow yes that is enough to drive you crazy crazy enough to cut your flipping nose off yep 
Michael Jackson. Yup. Let's see. This scene right here, I found so amazing. He says, when Zeze Preocopea was taken off his cleats, when Teo, also from the Minas, Jiraeus, but white and very handsome. Like, you didn't even need to include that. He was white and very handsome. Like, duh. You just hear me say he was white? Of course he's the most handsome thing ever. Appeared coming out of the shower, still wet, the homoeroticism, drying himself with a face towel to economize Botafogo. <clears throat> like other clubs did not buy bath towels the players had to dry themselves with face face towels so this accentuates that he's new he doesn't even have a towel to like wrap around his waist genitals exposed i basically got a hand towel in my hand to you know just stripe my my face off so i'm i'm totally nude coming out of here buck naked as they say and there came Tio, who played as a winger wiggling a little because he was vain regarding his well-shaped body and his movie star face I, we got it we got it this is the most beautiful white man ever yeah 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 as well as his brilliant full almost argentine hair are you serious this is so homoerotic and negroes with kinky hair should be the title of this book he placed himself in front of the mirror and while he combed his hair clothed only with a face towel around his neck he swayed on his feet to the rhythm of the radio samba zeo precopeo saw him from behind he could not resist and made a joke pause double entendre with that pause i said man did he make a joke about this white man's penis wellsing moment we'll never know <clears throat> the others laughed and Teo turned red. Mmm. Did he make a... Anyway. Feeling embarrassed... Oh, my Lord, Dr. Welsing. Feeling embarrassed, he touched on the sore spot of Zeze Preocopea, which was his color, the mulatto gray, that he had tried to disguise with plastic surgery to narrow his nose. What is mulatto gray? Is that like a... I have to look at that, too. I don't even know what that is. Teo regretted it immediately in the mirror. He saw Zeze Preocopeo grab the knife and stand up. And it goes from there that he was going to kill him. But they said Zeze Preocopeo was purple with rage. Like, what? Come on. I've heard that before, that they've had black people that were so dark and melanated that they were purple and used in kind of a racist manner. And this seems like that to me. Like, he was so mad because he said this was a mulatto we're not talking about a super dark person mulatto person that he was so angry that he turned purple really really this all of this like i said the system of white supremacy it does drive you crazy and so was all of this did this start with this non-white male making a comment about this white man's penis that made him turn red embarrassed and got everybody giggling then he turns and comments about this mulatto gray and his cut up nose and he gets his razor to cut him and turns purple Do dr francis crest welsing she had a birthday just a couple days ago like this is white genetic annihilation whole world and this is happening in the shadow of adolf hitler in world war ii and this is so much apparently they got footnotes with some of this like other people saw this is this something documented like people yep i was there that day came out and teased that white man about his small penis and it was on let's see uh 
Many mulattoes passed as white. Even in their Federation files, the medical department did not want to offend them using their very elastic Brazilian conception of color. <laughs> that That's why I said, I think just because the way that white supremacy racism operates in Brazil and there's so much lying and deception that people go there and they just get confused, right? There's a system of white supremacy racism, period. Apparently in this part of the world, they are really big on lying about that. And then with the racial classifications and just make it up as we go, make up new categories every day. We might have a billion by the time we get to 2025. We just make them up as we go. Even this now, we're white. We don't want to offend you. So it's not that we'll stop practicing racism. No, 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 no. We're going to do that, Coon. But what we will do, I know you don't want to be a nigger. I know we don't want to offend you. So I tell you what. Instead of a nigra, let's go with mestizo. Well, that's just what I thought of. What do you think? You got an, you want, what you think? What you want to try? Give me one. Let's let's we just we just spitball in here. Make up something. What you want to try? Amazonian. I love it. You like it? I love it. We'll put that down. Don't put nigra on there. We're gonna go with Amazon. And matter of fact, if you come up with one next week, let us know. We'll put that down. That's our favorite coon. We don't want to offend him. Are you out of your flipping? What I just, you do not qualify for mental health in a system of racism. So yes, you're out of your mind, but that, that is widespread. And you see that right here, right now, 2023. They say that with the U S census, you can pick multiple boxes. We don't want to offend you. If you don't want to be Negro, Hey, don't be Negro. Pick 50 of them, pick 20 of them. Check other, add in what I just say. Amazonian. Bahian, they got that one too, right? They make that one up. We make it up as we go. We just add a new one every day. Saying the black man who wished he wasn't black, straightened hair did not make him less black, unless to favor the hypothesis of a son of a white man and a black woman, as in the case of Leonidas, who was exactly this son of a black mother and a Portuguese father. This is a trend another reviewer noted in this book. The white people, they get geographic locations, German father, Portuguese father, Italian father, whatever it is. Nigger is just nigger, like eh, whatever. You know. uh, Mestizo, yeah, they got it. All of that I just found amazing. Even brown hair, that was a category. Is that a category still in Brazil right now? Brown hair, that's a racial classification? Brown haired? Confusion is lethal. Uh, he says, Gentil Cardoza never denied his condition of being black. On the contrary, it was like he proclaimed it. Not out of racial pride, a kind of racism in reverse. What? Racism in reverse. Let's keep reading but out of hurt, lest the condition of his color, which God had given him, than that of the barriers he saw raised all over against the man of color in Brazil. How is that racism in reverse when I say, he says if he were not black, he would be directing teams of the big clubs, and they would not deny him the honor of coaching the Brazilian side. How is that racism in reverse? That would be counter-racism. I'm pointing out that I'm a victim of racism. You all treat me like a negro classify me as a nigger call me a nigger and then won't let me have these jobs say I'm not qualified for this and that how is that racism in reverse come on Philo you I mean 
you're going to lie to us and tell us as teens with no racism and then say that this black fella is a racist in reverse. Like, come on, man. Come on. Uh, and then the white people got mad because they made him coach, of course. Uh, let's see. Anything else? We got the battle simulation that I talked about. Uh, yeah, battle simulator in there. Make sure our caller or, excuse me, person that wrote in. Uh, about the whole brawl, the Zaza Preoccupio, the whole scene where he gets into this brawl uh, is just, wow, I don't know what to say. Uh, let's see. Zaza Preoccupio, mixture of Molaire's miser, Dickens' moneylender, only loosened his purse strings for his son, avarice and usury colleague needed money 50% interest took payments with a knife some might con- construe this as a subtle anti-semitic Jewish slur I feel like it's been a few of those in here right he had his old concentration camp joke like mm. him and Kyrie I told you him and Kyrie man messing around let's see uh, number 18 Zezé Priel Capel taking off cleats tail white very handsome Brazilian soccer the epitome of cooperation among the races just one big happy family trying to kill each other hey I did, he says no racism there's no racism in Brazil we, we don't have those type problems here uh, last thing I will get in uh, before we wrap up this week's session he mentioned Oswald Spengler this white guy wrote a number of books uh, he mentioned him briefly. He wasn't a big hero. He just mentioned his name briefly as we were coming coming through the last little portion here. I just gave a quick look because I didn't know who this guy was and I never heard him before. I'm still learning. He wrote, not, it's not The Death of the West. Let me make sure I get the correct uh, title here. Decline. That's it. Uh, the Decline of the West and this came out in the era of like eugenics and all the rest of it. What is that book that we read? What the rising tide of color against white world supremacy, Lothrop Stoddard, this book, the decline of the West came out at the same time, really just a few years apart. Um, you can, you know, do some research on your own. If you want to Oswald Spengler, Uh, Apparently, some of this guy's ideas influenced Adolf Hitler uh, and some of the critiques that he had of uh, Spengler's critiques of how the the Nazi party operated. And he had his critiques of Jews as well. Uh, It's fascinating. But, yeah, check out this guy. He says uh, he's mentioned briefly on at the bottom of 232. He says uh, it was not for nothing that he had read Oswald talking about Andino Vieira, that he had read Oswald Spengler, the prophet of the decline of the West. The era of successive wars is going to begin. He wrote other books, but that book in particular, this guy is a, uh, was born in Germany, white man, Oswald Spengler, maybe worth uh, investigating. Anywho, I think as this book continues, we, we might get a teaspoon more information about some of the Nazis that relocated to South America after World War II. We'll have to kind of pay attention on all that. Anywho, uh, we did our one session for today. Uh, guess folks didn't, nothing stood out and didn't see any hands. Uh, if you are listening to the archives, we should have a few more sessions before we wrap up. So feel free, drop an email, what have you. Uh, if you are following along with the archive of the book, hope it's worthy of your time and energy. All of that said, hey, we say it all the time. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy, racism, 
Man, this book would give lots of reasons why that is the case. I'm going to go research a little bit of the history of plastic surgery. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling. Do a lot of that on the sly in this book. No gossiping. No street urchin throw away offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.